Hello, and welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. My name is Carrie Smith. I'm here with my co-host, Carter Laren. If it's your first time here, Deprogrammed is a deep dive show that we do into my old belief system, which most often I call social justice ideology. We have a very special guest today. I'm so excited for you guys to meet uh, my friend Clifton Duncan, who is sporting a hat much sexier and more cool than my own. I really like that hat. And uh, before we get into it, maybe Carter, you could read Clifton's official bio. Sure. Uh, thanks, Gary. <laughs> uh, Clifton is a classically trained professional actor and singer based in New York City, where he earned his MS MFA from the Tisch School of Arts prestigious graduate acting program. A dynamic and versatile performer, over the span of his career, he's earned standout reviews from outlets such as the LA Times, the Washington Post, Entertainment Weekly, and the New York Times, excelling in a variety of genres from Shakespeare to comedy to musical theater. I actually watched one of your Shakespeare videos uh, recently, by the way. Well, well done. Uh, he's appeared off-Broadway in multiple critically acclaimed productions, including most recently the classic stage company's smash revival of Carmen Jones, where he starred opposite two-time Tony Award winner uh, Anika Noni Rose. And is it Nani or Noni? It's Noni. Noni, yeah. Noni. And starred on Broadway in the beloved British comedy The Play That Goes Wrong, co-produced by J.J. Abrams. You may also have seen him guest, star guest starring for programs on Stars, Fox, NBC, and CBS, where he geeked out because he got to do a bunch of scenes with Scott Bakula on CSI New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I also would have geeked out for that. Uh, you can find <laughs> him bullshitting about politics on Twitter at Clifton Duncan and on Instagram at Clifton Duncan Online. And make sure to check out his YouTube channel. We'll put links to his Twitter, Facebook, and or sorry, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube all uh, below in the show notes. Welcome, Clifton. <laughs> hey, thank you for that that lovely introduction. I wonder who wrote it. It sounds like some genius wrote that introduction. It's beautiful. I know. I know. I just it's, it's sometimes you know people just they 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 send you stuff and um, it just turns out really well. I don't know how it happens. It's yeah. so mysterious. It's amazing. <laughs> Clifton, I'm so excited to get to talk to you. So because we met via Twitter, I believe, and then I got to meet you in person during. Yeah. The pandemic this year. I met you in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. What, what and, were you doing? What, what, what? I, for, I forgot what was happening. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, it's 2020, so it's been a constant stream of, uh, of, been, of pleasantries. But yeah, uh, I, think, I drove I home. I, I drove home to South Carolina to see my family, and uh, my fellow and I. And then we just. I was going through Atlanta and said, "Hey, let's meet up," and that was so much fun. And you, one reason I'm really excited to talk to you is because. After that meeting, I said to my boyfriend, I said, I don't I don't know what he's going to end up doing online, but he's going to be a very important voice. He's going to do things once he figures out what it is he wants to do. And I think you maybe this is just an outsider's perspective, but I think you're moving into that space of figuring out what it is you want to do and say online. Is that accurate? Well, that's 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 so crazy because I, I feel like that's exactly um, I mean, it's sort of a in a broader sense, where I where I'm at in my life uh, right now, because I mean, and I was sort of there when 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 we met and we and we sat down, but um, I, I feel increasingly, you know, it's just it's really difficult for me to shut up about this kind of stuff, and uh, it, it's really important to me. And at a certain point, I feel like it's, I mean, I feel like there's certain shifts that are going on, um, just technologically and and paradigmatically, like sociopolitically, but also at the same time. Um, you know, to be frank, I just it's it's tough 
it's becoming tougher and tougher for me to feel like I belong um, in in the entertainment industry as, as it is, which is it's a tough thing to say and, and realize mm -hmm. uh, because the more that I enter into this space, um, you know, it, it, it produces a lot of anxiety. You know, I've got mm -hmm. I've got friends. Uh, I mean, I've been able to find friends. Uh, you know, we 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 feel as though we're living double lives, really. And, and you can't one of the paradoxes of acting is that, you know, you have to know you have to have self-knowledge and, and you're using yourself in service of these different these different characters. And if you spend years and years and years sort of biting your tongue and just not really engaging and sort of sitting back, I mean, you know, I, and, I, and you can you can almost tell people, tell the people now that are sort of like, or I can discern who is sort of not really on the, I'll call it the crazy train, but, uh, you know, mm -hmm. people are offended by that now. But, you know, because <laughs> there's sort of a, there's a, there's a deadness behind the eyes. And, and as actors, we can't afford to be, you know, it's part of our job to be charismatic and compelling. And, you know, if, if you're dead inside, if you're lying to yourself every, you know, constantly, and it's not as though you're, you know, you're running down the street, you know, dropping N-bombs and talking about how women shouldn't vote. It's just, you have like completely <laughs> conventional, uh, conventional opinions, you know, that, that once you get out of these bubbles of San Francisco or New York City or Los Angeles, you, you find that, you know, regular people either don't care about this stuff or they just don't respond uh, to these types of um, ideas. And, you know, it, it's it's always refreshing when you find someone that that um, that uh, that shares your your views. But it's like, you know, we're just we're just normal people <laughs> who are who just have a cool job that we enjoy. You know, we, we're not we're not evil, but we're but we're treated that way. And I think, you know, the, the, the broader point is that, you know, increasingly I, I feel as though, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not an axe murderer. I'm not some sort of sociopath. I, you know, I, I came to my opinions and views, um, you know, over after long deliberation and, and organically and gradually. And um, but it's. It's tough for me, especially now, to feel as though I, I still have a, a a place. I mean, in 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 the industry, especially the more that I speak up about these types of things. So yeah, I don't I don't know quite what I'm doing, but I am, as you said, I am I'm I'm figuring it out. I feel like, you know, you're searching for truth. Well, there's something you said there that I think is the the key point. You said you you've come to your opinions after thoughtful deliberation, and. I think I think that's I think that's what's missing a lot now is that people just adopt these sort of received opinions and mm. whether they're on the right or the left or I think it's easy to fall into this place of just adopting whatever beliefs your tribe has. And I certainly when I was in social justice belief system, I didn't spend a lot of thoughtful deliberation on what I thought about things. It was more about just making sure I spoke the ideology correctly and didn't. Um, set off any tripwires, you know, say the wrong thing. Um, and so uh, when you're talking about finding people who are like-minded, Carter and I talk a lot about how, you know, wouldn't it be exciting if we could get back to a place where we can all disagree and argue again about interesting things instead, <laughs> like, like maybe have the, for example, he's atheist. Uh, I'm a new Christian. We very rarely debate the existence of God not really interested in it because there's this more pressing environment of censorship and conformity that's happening around us. So we don't have, it's like, we don't have the space to debate these. Wouldn't it be a nice luxury to be, you know, finding out what all of our differences is, differences are. But in the meantime, it's sort of, uh, you find people who, um, think like you, at least in terms of 
being open to having differing opinions and discussion and debate and thoughtful deliberation. So are, it sounds like you're saying that's not really the environment I, in the acting world has become thoroughly woke. Is that would that be an accurate statement or no? Well, it's <clears throat> you know I, I I try to be careful because yeah. and, and I feel torn because when you when you meet these individuals and and I've been privileged especially over the past couple of years you know as I as I've moved up and uh, up and up in my career you know it's it, the the entertainment industry it's first of all I mean it's all those kind of weird kind of kooky kids in high school that that made references to all their favorite musicals, you know, and, and was sort of annoying to everybody else. I mean, those are the people that grow up to become the movie stars and writers and directors and producers um, of the future. So, you know, what you have is a lot of interesting people, uh, really unique people from all walks of life who have, you know, interesting backgrounds. And and in my experience, you know, they're, they're very warm and they're, they're very caring about the things that they care about. And, and a lot of them are actually highly intelligent. I don't think you can be a great, a great actor without, uh, without having a degree of intelligence. I mean, just in terms of the process that goes into crafting a great performance. And <clears throat> yet at the same time, I think it's a combination of this, the sorts of people that are drawn uh, to, to the arts. I think, uh, I think, I mean, one of my beefs with conservatives is that they, you know, they, I mean, I think their pragmatism makes them tend to eschew the arts as a profession and they look down on it. And, you know, I mean, I have a friend, a close friend of mine who's way further to the right than I am. And, and even, I mean, she goes to shows, I take her to shows with me, you know, but, but uh, initially upon our meeting, she was like, well, acting produces nothing, you know, entertainment, it produces nothing. And it's like true in a sense, we're, it's not like we're manufacturing, you know, furniture or, or car, like, like, or, or we're farming. There's, there's, there's nothing. It's, it's all intangible, uh, what, what we produce. But then at the same time, they turn around and say, well, the libs own entertainment. And it's like, okay, well, you have to, you know, you, you can walk over and join us. But if they do, and this, is, and this goes back to what we we're talking about, um, they'll be met with uh, just a lot of hostility, um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of vitriol. I mean, I was, I was indirectly referred to the brain dead independent, uh, you know, on a break from rehearsal for a concert that I was doing. And there's, so there's not only a, a, a resistance to any sort of, I mean, even centrist or moderate uh, opinions, uh, there's, there's a, a, a hatred about it. And, and, you know, and, and part of the, and part of what really bugs me about it is that part of my training, um, I mean, you know, I went to a fancy conservatory. It's, you know, they only take 2% of their applicants and, and we, it's one of the best of the best. And we learned that curiosity and empathy are two of the cornerstones of, of acting. You know, when you're, when you're, when you're building a character, you know, you have to keep asking yourself questions and just dig deeper and like, you know, why is this person behaving this way? And even if I don't like this person, like, what is it that's driving them to do these things that I detest so I can understand, so I can play this character. And I feel a lot of people calling themselves actors right now are, are exercising neither of those attributes um, as far as their politics. Uh, it, mm. It's, you know, you, you'll be in these rehearsal rooms and I just, some of the most asinine things I've ever heard. This is one that, that really sent me through the roof. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to rehearse this. I'm not going to be specific, but, you know, it's, it's an adaptation of a popular movie that we're turning basically into a musical. You know what I mean? It's, it's a ridiculous show. And but we're stopping rehearsal every 15 minutes because, oh, did you see what Donald Trump did now? Da, 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 da. I'm like, yo, can, can we just rehearse this dumb show? You know what I mean? 
and 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 hope the check's clear. But you know, there's one point where I'm doing this thing, and 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 um, they were like, this director was like, well, you know, a lot of Republican women they vote with their husbands because they're afraid of them. And I was like, <laughs> what? That's one of the most misogynistic things I've ever heard in my life. I had to leave the room when I heard that. But then I heard it again. I was guest starring on, on another show. And one of the actresses on set said the same thing. So I'm like, this, this is sort of a thing on, on, I guess it's the left, if you want to call it that. Um, yeah. And you can tell immediately that these people have n- no engagement whatsoever with people that think differently from them. You know, it's like... It, it, it's like really Republican women don't have agency. Conservative women are you, you know, like you know Candace Owens has no agency. You know Michelle yeah. Malkin, um, Ann Coulter, Heather McDonald. Now you know I could agree or disagree with any of these women, but to, to say that any of these women could be ruled or controlled by their by their husband, it's an insult. To, it's an insult to them. You know, so it's and it just it throws out the window this idea that you are you know, you, we're, we're for women's rights or like, or women's freedom or whatever. It's like, no, it's only certain kind of women. It's, it's quite obvious <laughs> that yeah. there's only, there's only certain ki- types of women or minorities, you know, allowed. It's, um, it's well, just, it, ex- it's, it excuses them from having to explain why some women disagree with them because other, if they didn't say they were just afraid of their husbands, they would have to explain why Candace Owens has a different opinion. But if they can chalk it up to, oh, these people have no agency, then eh, we don't have to investigate anymore, which is almost a, a willful anti-curiosity to get back to your curiosity point it's 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 anti-curiosity there's no there's no attempt to really in, engage uh there's and it's weird because they say well this person lacks uh, agency you know that they're just afraid of whatever you know but that's sort of the same argument that they use against minorities who don't go along with the social justice line it's like and it's always it's almost not always but it, it's it's often like white uh, leftists or or liberal. I, mean, I don't even know what to call these people anymore. I, I don't want to call them liberals because it feels like they, they sort of soil the name of liberalism. But you know, they they, they tell you that the oh, you know, you don't understand the ideas that you're saying. You, you don't. You just you've internalized this this bigotry and this racism. And you know, it's just it's so it's so condescending and insulting. It's like yeah. people. You know, it's it's one thing you could just say that. I think that they're wrong or that they're misguided or, you know, whatever, but they say, no, that they're, they're stupid and they don't have any, they have no idea what they're, what they're doing. And, you know, they're unable to think it's just, it's so insulting. And it's, and it's, uh, I, it's I see that a lot. Of, it's anti-curiosity. So I, I've seen that a lot about uh, black conservatives in the social justice groups that I'm in online. There's always this uh, accusation. Um, Cause you know, they say, they say one thing, but they have another way. So they say, we need to shut up and listen to black voices. But then they behave a different way. They say, well, not that black voice, not that black voice, or that black voice, or that black voice. Oh, well, why not those? And then it's always, well, they're a puppet for white men. That's or exactly, yeah. yeah, they don't have agency. They don't have, they're not, those aren't their opinions. They're just being used or, you know, they're too dumb to realize they're manipulated or, or whatever. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your... So I, I'm, I'm thinking of this question because you said you hesitate to call them liberals, and I do the same. I I still consider myself liberal on a lot of issues, more conservative on other issues now, but I don't like ceding the term liberal to them and giving it up because they are social justice at least at least in practice the way it's practiced is very illiberal. It seems to support censorship and it it 
doesn't create a welcome environment for disagreement or compromise or seeking truth um, or creativity. Even it's not a good environment for creativity, and it doesn't. It's not liberal, and so uh, I don't even know what I am anymore. We are probably we get called all kinds of things. We occasionally get people calling us liberal loons, but we also get people calling us alt right now, which is crazy. Um, what is your trajectory and political opinions? Do you have? Do you describe yourself as a liberal, a conservative, independent? Like, what what has been your story? I um, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I'm sort of in the same place. I mean, I'm right now. I'm, I'm holding to the title uh, liberal uh, because. You know, I, I don't really jive with the progressive um, mindset, even if, you know, I mean, their ideals are fine, uh, but, you know, I'm just, that doesn't, that's not really my, my team, but at the same time, I'm, I've, I feel like, you know, I don't really fit in well with conservatives uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, I, I joke all the time. It's like, dude, I'm a, I, I'm a pot smoking pro-choice atheist who loves show tunes and Judy Garland. Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, what? Conservatives like really like white supremacist. You know, <laughs> exactly, it's it's ridiculous. So, but you know, and but but also psychologically, you know, I feel like I'm just more of a, a and part of it is I think why I'm an actor is I'm just more just more open, and that's sort of how I go through the world. I'm you know I'm, I'm sort of impressionable in a way. I'm interested in a lot of things. Um, sometimes I feel conservatives can be a bit too stodgy. Um, libertarianism. You know, again, you know, they, they seem cool to me and, and, you know, I don't know that much about their, their ideology yet, but, uh, you know, but it doesn't, doesn't feel to me intuitively like I really fit into that camp. So right now I'm holding to, you know, I'm, I'm a very liberal minded person, but I think, uh, but I think conservatives are sort of, um, you know, they, they have valid points as well and concerns. Although I will say, because when we met, um, I mentioned I was reading Thomas Sowell's A Conflict of Visions, and it's sort of, I think everyone should read that book to kind of understand you know, the divisions that we're seeing right now. And I, I'm starting to, to use terms like liberal and conservative a bit less now. And, and I think it's more about um, realists versus idealists. And I think oh. those are like, I think those are healthier terms because they don't come with the baggage that 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 liberal and conservative do. But they also, I think, highlight the the strengths and the flaws of, of both ideologies in a way. Like, uh, a more conservative minded person will be more of a realist. So, you know, the idealist will say we are healthcare for all, but the, but the realist is like, that sounds great. How do we pay for it? And yeah. so, you, you know, I think, so I think that you need the dreamers and, and, and the idealists, um, and, and, the, and the romanticists in your society, but you also need the people that are going to keep them in check and say, okay, we need to be pragmatic about this and practical and figure out how, how to work this out. So, I mean, I have great admiration for, for both sides, both sides. I mean, I feel like it's a false dichotomy, but I mean, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, you know, to sum up, you know, I, I don't quite know what I call myself. I try not to be partisan, but it's very difficult these days. And, you know, I have my own biases, obviously, but as far as my journey, um, <laughs> getting back to the second part of your question, um, you know, it was very gradual. Like I said, it was organic. Um, I mean, I got out of uh, my fancy schmancy uh, grad school. I mean, I'm one of those people that uh, paid an exorbitant amount of money for a, a pretty much useless degree. But, um, you know, I got out and I was in a very bad place. It was during the recession. And I found this book um, at Borders. Remember Borders? Uh, and <laughs> I loved Borders, just called, FYI. I thought Borders yeah, it was, was awesome. kind of a, it was, it was a cool place to be. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, there was a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy by a guy named Robert Glover. And at the time I was suffering with severe depression and I picked up this book and it was the first book that I had read that was unabashedly pro-male. And it, it was about developing a it was about, you know, getting rid of your quote unquote nice guy syndrome and becoming a, a healthy, he calls it an integrated male. And it was the first time I'd read anything that didn't say that men are trash, that they are that, that you know, we're inferior to women and that we're garbage and that we're useless, which is an idea that I'd sort of internalized a long time ago. And shortly after that, you know, I started going to the gym and and just, you know, weight training and and I found that the more that I embraced my masculinity, the happier that I was and the more work that I got, to be honest. And, um, you know, it, it it began cascading from there where I'm like, well, you know, it's not it, it, there's nothing wrong with being a guy. And, you know, and it was conflicting with all I know. Right. It's, it's insane to say that. Hold on, we're gonna have to cut that part out so we don't get banned from YouTube. Yeah, this will, uh, that, this will that be that sounds, uh, that sounds really close to saying it's okay to be white, and we know whoa, we know whoa, how of that. Okay. Let's not get crazy. Let's uh, let's not go too far into into. Next thing you're going to be talking about how the frogs are are turning gray. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> like extremist. Um, but you know, so so then I I, I began to internalize that, but then. Um, in 2014 is when it really began to take off. And, you know, by that point, um, you know, the, the Ferguson riots were starting. And um, this was a couple of years after the after the Trayvon Martin uh, killing. And by this point, um, this is about August. And there was a little controversy called Gamergate that, that erupted. Yes. And, um, and, you know, and I consider myself a, a gamer. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a part of that culture. I haven't you know, I mean, I own a switch right now, so I don't know if that really counts, but, you know, I, I keep up with the culture um, and, and the hobby via YouTube and online and everything. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I saw the whole thing unfold. But then I saw how it was covered in the news versus what was actually happening. And week after week, I mean, it, it really was it was Internet drama at first it started with a, a sex scandal. So it was like, ooh, you know, this this is kind of uh, fun and juicy. I can kill some time reading about uh, all this crazy stuff. I'm not going to get into what it was all about because it's so convoluted unless you were like there from the beginning. But I mean, stop me if you heard this before. There was, you know, there were progressive journalists who were gatekeeping what stories could and could not be printed. Um, there were moderators at various message boards, um, as well as other journalists and outlets who were straight up censoring any discussion about this topic. Um, you know, they were protecting bad actors because they were in they were in their tribe with this this group of San Francisco uh, game developers and their journalist friends. Um, so it, it, it really became a microcosm of many of the issues I began to. It, 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 start, it, it was the, the seed of my skepticism. I already had problems with the, with the, with the media. Um, ironically, following people like Glenn Greenwald uh, since 2005, who's been very consistent in his criticisms of the press. And um, so I was already like, you know, these people are garbage. But to see the, the tribalism, to see the squelching of any sort of dissent, to see how all of these quote unquote journalists were injecting their activism into. I mean, I just want to read how good is the game? Are the graphics cool? <laughs> are the gameplay mechanics sound? 
You know, is, is there a good story? Am I going to have fun? Is, is there a great replay value? You know, back in the day when you read, you know, uh, you know, Electronic Gaming Monthly or Game Pro or Nintendo Power, it was like you read the reviews, you read the cheat section, you look at what's coming up next. And that was kind of it. You know, no one wants to go to their video game website and read about how they're this sort of toxic, misogynistic, um, you know, person. I'm like, dude, it's video games, bro. Like, this is a medium which features aliens and robots and ogres and all kinds of creatures as protagonists. And we're, we're talking about diversity? What the fuck are we talking about? It's video games. Like, no, no, no one picks up, you know, Mega Man and is like, this is a white male. And gets a fucking robot. It's fake. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's fake. And... Wait, that's a great point. I can't believe they haven't, or actually, I haven't looked. They probably have uh, gone back and disavowed Mario Brothers and stuff for lack of diversity. Have they? Well, it's well, you know, well, there's the whole narrative because you know the the Mario franchise is well, we're going to go save the princess, and so that you know is a sexist trope, you know, in and of itself. You know, it's it's just this this toxically uh, masculine idea of like wanting to save someone you care about. Uh, you know, it's it's how dare it, they? It's really twisted. <laughs> how not, dare men want to save people they care about? I don't. I, I know. I'm upset we're, about it's. Oh, it's offensive. I can see your face turning red right now as we yeah. speak. I'm sorry to have offended you. I'm artists. so I'm terrible. so upset about this. I'm so insensitive. But but then but I saw the press coverage of it and it was so unbelievably one sided. And when you see, I had the secondhand experience of having uh, this controversy reported as this this right wing this right wing move terrorist movement that was uh seeking to uh get women out of out of gaming it, it, it i mean it, it got so big that it even spawned an infamous uh, uh law and order svu episode uh, about the incident which pleased would satisfy nobody but i was like it, it's it's insane because you had there were plenty of minorities, there were plenty of women, and also sexual minorities that were like, no, we 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 see what the what the gamer gators are saying and we support them, but they were completely ignored. I mean, stop again, stop. You've heard this before. They were ignored. They were insulted. I mean, I had people telling telling me that, um, you know, you, you don't understand uh, the, the the nature of what's going on. You, you you know, I mean, white people. You know what I mean? Just talking down to me as if I don't know what's going on. And I was just, I was astounded just at how flagrantly dishonest the, the coverage was, but also how people like, I mean, I'll say the name, like Anita Sarkeesian or Brianna Wu were showered with this uh, fawning press attention. Zoe Quinn is another one. Zoe um, Quinn. Who keeps, who keeps failing upwards somehow. She, and, I'm going to cut in just for a second. Yeah. I, I was on the wrong side of Gamergate because I was full in the social justice world then. And... Mm-hmm. I was at the time uh, producing a late night comedy show with one of my clients, W. Kamal Bell. We had a show on FX. And when all the Gamergate stuff was happening, I just like I did a lot of things. I didn't dive deep into it. I didn't read about where it started. I didn't read the about the um, like you said, the sex scandal and stuff. I didn't I just knew surface level what my tribe, social justice tribe, believed and I was the kind of person who would retweet a Brianna Wu or Anita Sarkeesian or, or Zoe Quinn without even knowing what I was a mouthpiece for. And afterwards, years afterwards, when I started leaving my echo chamber and trying to figure out what I really thought about things, I went back. I knew it would take a while. I went back and did a deep dive into Gamergate. And I, I read the blogs from Zoe Quinn's 
boyfriend and I read all about how talk about a narcissistic sociopath, that woman, when you say she's failed up, well, yes, because that's what narcissists do. And she abused that guy. This is my opinion. She abused that guy and then painted him as the abuser. And that just became the story and people believe it. And, and people believe narcissists that they are good at manipulating their image. And so I've, I just have a, I have a fascination with that part of it, aside from my opinions about Gamergate, is just how these, because sometimes I look at, like, Brianna Wu has tons of people follow her, and it it is shocking. Mm-hmm. On one hand, it's, how can you not see who this person is? But on the other hand, it's like, well, that's the nature of, of that kind of personality type, I think, is they do attract followers and people who are willing to attack others on their behalf, which is People like me, I was willing to attack others on the behalf of these horrible people. And I had no idea what I was really doing. You know what I mean? It's yeah, weird. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you, 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 you want to, I mean, you want to give people the benefit of the doubt and you, and you, you know, and so I think that's, Maybe that's a, a, a positive note about maybe our humanity or our, our good naturedness. You know, we, we, we want to help people. We want to protect them if we perceive that they're vulnerable. And, and all the reporting was just about how all these horrible people were just sending death threats and abuse. Yes. And some of that was and some of that was happening. Um, but what wasn't being reported on is that it was happening on both sides of the of the issue. And, you know, and it was astounding to me um, that. I mean, actually, David Pakman. Who, who, who um, you, you know, I have my mixed feelings about him, but he actually interviewed some of these people that were at the center of this. I mean, he interviewed Bri- Brianna Wu and and another man named Arthur Chu, who were like on the on the other side oh. of the issue. And and in both of these interviews, I mean, I appreciated what David did because, you know, I mean, he was sympathetic to them, but he also challenged them. And you could see right away that it was like uh, they, they were kind of just not. They were not all together there, and 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 you sort of begin to worry about their their mental health, which I feel like is sort of a common theme among a lot of these people. And I don't mean to say that in a condescending way, or a judgmental way, but you know, birds of a feather flock. What is it? <laughs> they flock together. They, flock. <laughs> they birds, do that as well. Birds of yes. a feather flock together. You know, and uh, well, I guess they flock together too. But. So, you know, maybe I don't know what it is about these movements that uh, this is sort of something I've been thinking about lately as well. You know, they 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 seem to attract people who are deeply insecure and who have uh, lots of of problems. And, you know, in Jordan Peterson, I mean, there goes my cancellation. You can't talk about Jordan Peterson now. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I really like his 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 idea of like, you know, don't I mean, life is hard. You know, life is tragic. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. And there's always going to be somebody that hates you. The, 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 the proper response is not to shrink away. Uh, it's, to, it's to build yourself up so that you have the esteem and, and, the, and their strength and the resiliency to face all of these challenges and face all these things. But we, I feel like we are, we are prioritizing frailty uh, over over i don't know achievement over strength over over strength over Resilience. over anything productive that, that that could be that could be positive in 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 your life and we're indulging people who frankly i think just you know they 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 need some kind of counseling and help as opposed to you know being given 
huge platforms <laughs> like yeah. like Twitter or YouTube, you know, or jobs at the New York Times. You know, can I mean, can you believe? Can you believe? I know this is a complete non sequitur, but it's like, how on earth is an op-ed from Tom Cotton harming you know your your black staff at the New York Times? Like, are you kidding me? You, I mean, you work at the New York Times. You, you're doing something right. But someone writing, you know, an op-ed about a position that is not unpopular, you know, about sending in troops to to stop, uh, to to quell riots, which Obama did in Ferguson, you know, how are you harming these people? I just, I, 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 I just can't imagine someone like my grandmother, who was born in 1936, complaining that somebody wrote some words <laughs> people like, you know what I mean? Or like, or you know, my mom, who was in the military for 17 years, and you know, I think she got out as like an E6 or E7 uh, uh, sergeant. And, you know, she had her complaints, but I mean, she's like this five foot three woman who, you know, with, with the glasses on, but nobody was fucking with her. You know what I mean? Like she, <laughs> she's not letting anybody push her around. So why, why is it? And I, why is it that these people were, are able to, to, to bear up and, and, and move forward? But these people who are in the lap of privilege who are, are, are living at the greatest time ever to be alive in human history. Why are they so frail? Why are they so afraid of everything? Why are they so triggered because by some, And with, with jobs at the New York Times, right? Like, like yeah. these, these cushy jobs at the New York Times. You're, you're reminding me of a, have you read um, Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukianoff and uh, Jonathan Haidt? It's on, my, it's on my backlog, but I did read the original article, yeah. I think yeah. you would really get a lot out of it because he, they dive into this question specifically about how um, self self uh, self improvement and introspection is uh, <clears throat> is kind of vilified and externalizing all your problems is encouraged and and how we've kind of built a generation of people with incent around incentives that incentivize uh, dysfunction, like psychological dysfunction. So I think without being super judgmental, I know you're not trying to be condescending to these people, but I think there is a larger proportion of dysfunction than in the past. There's a lot of dysfunction out there on some level, and there's an encouragement to wallow in that dysfunction. And, uh, that dysfunction is actually worn as a badge. You see people on Twitter put, uh, you know, they, they list their psychological problems on Twitter as badges. Like I have ADHD and also I have this and also I have that and depression. Um, those aren't badges, uh, but they historically weren't badges, but they are now. And so when that's the kind of environment you have, there's no incentive to actually it's, fix yourself, right? It's virtue from oppression. Yes. So like you're saying, yeah, there's an incentive to view yourself as oppressed and make it part of your identity. And if your uh, victimization, because Tom Cotton wrote an op-ed, you know, there's virtue in that and saying, uh, not real virtue, but there's this in this belief system, there is there's there's in this belief system, there's a virtue in saying I was harmed by that article or in saying I am depression, you know. Mm. That's who I am. I'm oppressed because of my mental health problems or because and, my frailty. And I think this it's one of these things, you know, and I I had a, a talk with a friend about this and, you know, who was more progressive than I am. And, and we both agreed to, you know, I, we are. It kind of goes back to what you were saying, Carter, you know, we're, we're we are. 
what's the word I'm looking for? We are lionizing people who are dwelling in their, whatever their stuff is. And, you know, and I say this as somebody who, I mean, I used to struggle with severe depression. I still have my days, you know what I mean? And, and again, that's, that's part of my temperament. I mean, I'm an actor. I just, you know, that, I, that my emotional life is, you know, it's, it's just there, but you learn how to control that, you know, as a professional. And, um, you know, when I, what, what, one of the things that bothers me the most, and uh, this sort of was one of the things that accelerated my decision to be like, you know what, man, I can't align myself with these people anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, heart conditions like heart disease, especially uh, in the black community. I mean, it's one of the number one killers, if not the number one killer. And you know, we die. This, I mean, we have we have the best athletes on the, in the world, but we also have some of the worst uh, health outcomes. And it's things like hypertension and diabetes. High blood pressure runs in my family. I mean, I was diagnosed with. Uh, uh, I was prescribed medication for high for my high blood pressure when I was 25 years old. Now, wow. thankfully, after after a decade of, of of working out and exercise, you know, I've I've gotten it under control, um, which I'm very proud of. But then you have people on the other side who are like talking about uh, body positivity or fat acceptance. And I'm thinking to myself, how can you claim that you stand for black lives, yet you are putting forth this idea that will inevitably lead to more black death? I just don't understand that. And, you know, this idea that, you know, sex positivity is is another thing. I mean, have you, according to the CDC, I mean, have you seen the rates of STI infection, particularly among black women? And I'm, and again, I said I'm pro-choice, but you know, the rates of abortion in these communities. You know, how many, how much life are we snuffing out, uh, or, or or preventing from from you know ever seeing seeing the light of day? And these people are who claim to to stand for people who look like me are pushing these things, which I feel are leading to not only the the, the kind of group destruction, but just to personal personal immiseration, um, you know, spiritually, physically, mentally, financially. And and, and they fail to see the contradictions in there. I mean, the contradictions are a feature, not a bug. And at a certain point, I said, I really don't feel as though these people genuinely care about uh, about Black Lives. I mean, I was one of the few people, I think, that actually went to Black Lives Matters, the organization, their website, uh, back in like 2014, when the, the movement really rose to prominence. And I, I knew immediately, first of all, there was scant, if any, mention of police brutality on the website whatsoever. And I'm like, you have people out here, you know, burning down cities. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Uh, and, and destroying all this property um, because they think that they're protesting police brutality, which is something that everyone can get behind, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet I go to the website and it's a bunch of intersectional buzzwords. It's a, it's a lot of uh, sort of, I guess I'd call it, you know, radical, progressive. I don't know what, what you would call it, but that but all the terminology was there on the site. And there was one entry in particular that really pissed me off. It said, um, you know, we want to we want to protect the safety of it was like uh, mothers and some other word for for mothers, parents of the no mention of fathers. And, wow. you know, and one of the, and one of the embarrassing things for me in my life is to say, like, I grew up without my father. And I feel like, you know, there was a comedian named Patrice O'Neill who was talking about the same thing. Oh. You, know, you know, Patrice, right? Yeah. You're, yeah, you're, you're in the comedy world. So, you know, but, but he was like, you know, I feel like I'm learning shit 10 years too late. And that's what I feel like, you know, as someone who grew up without, a, without a father in his life. So to see that these people, you know, formatted this website, and deliberately skipped over father because then when you come down to cities like Atlanta or you talk to black people, they know what part of the problem is. They know that there's an absence of, of good 
strong, positive male role models. And yet here we have this organization which is claiming to speak uh, or, or claiming to champion black people, but they're deliberately uh, omitting fathers from the equation whatsoever. And that to me said immediately, this is 2014, I said, no, no, they, wow. they, they are not serious at all about what they're going for. They, they are more concerned about themselves and putting forth whatever their agenda is, which I think, you know, frankly, it's, it's not really about black people. It's about using black people and trans people and gay people to achieve another end. And that has nothing to do with, with any of us. I said, these people, you know, I, I can't support these people. But of course, you know, that, that's, that's what makes me um, a pariah uh, and, and uh, among the circles that I, <laughs> I used to travel in. Yeah. Right. That's, I mean, that's very interesting that you saw you were able to read between the lines back in 2014, because I know recently they scrubbed their site when people were pointing yeah, out. Yeah, they were po uh, pointed out that they were talking about destruction of the nuclear family. And um, the I think they even did they talk about Marxism on the page? They did, I think, talk I, about Marxism, I, I, yeah. I don't. I don't remember if, if if they did. I do know there was that video of one of the co-founders saying that she is a trained Marxist. But you know, but but yeah, they, they totally were like you know the nuclear family. But then when you actually talk to black people, I mean, they they know. And this is one of the things about being down in Atlanta and outside of a progressive bubble that that I've really enjoyed. <laughs> down here in Atlanta, you have you have artists. You know, I mean, there's illustrators, there's musicians. Um, you know, we have young entrepreneurs. You know, up, you know, there's architects, dentists. You know, and I'm, I'm meeting these people partly because of my job, which I won't share. I won't divulge because I don't want crazy people, you know, uh, coming after me. But I'm like, there's there's an entrepreneurial spirit and a spirit of just hustling and just trying to not just make it, but just but live life. And I feel like that's what we need. We don't need people telling us how bad everything is. We need people who are who are entrepreneurial and they're self-starters and they have that spirit inside of them where they're like, you know, I'm I'm going to go get it. And on top of all of that. You know, people, they, they understand that it's a good idea to not to, to have a functional upbringing. You know what I mean? Like they, they understand that, that families are a good thing. And, and black people, you know, as an atheist, I say that black people are more, are more Christian than not. Mm -hmm. And they, and I think as, as such, they also understand the importance of, of family. So to see that this, this organization claiming to, to speak on behalf or, or to, um, advocate on behalf of, of black people while, while omitting things that are so important and so key to so many black people. I mean, you know, you can't be a Marxist and, and an entrepreneur. <laughs> it, just, it, it doesn't quite work that way. But when I talk to people down here, and that's their spirit. They say, you know, I mean, people down here are far more heterodox in their thinking, which is really refreshing than, than in a city like New York, where they think that they know everything, but they actually know very little. And it's, it's just refreshing to see people that are like, you know, I think capitalism is good and, you know, we need more entrepreneurs and, you know, I have my own business and, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, a, I'm an illustrator, you know, come check out my drawings. I'm a, I'm an art, uh, I'm an, uh, a musician, you know, come and buy my music. I mean, people are, are trying to build their lives down here. And, you know, and, and I think if they really understood what the underpinnings of, of the BLM movement were about, I think they would think twice uh, about supporting it as, as ardently as they do. But it has a great name. Well, see, okay, here's another thing because, and people aren't making the distinction. So, you know, you have to break it down in three levels. I'm not the first person to do this, but, you know, I spoke to a friend earlier and I was like, look, here's why I don't support Black Lives Matter. I support it as a sentiment, as a slogan, as a phrase. You know, it's sort of an empty platitude. Well, yeah, Black Lives Matter. Okay. Yeah, we get it. Yeah. I agree. 
But as an organization, I've already you know, gone through the reasons why I don't support them. And then as a political movement, it's, it's another thing as well. So it's, it's sort of a linguistic piece of genius because, you know, they've played it now opposition to the organization and opposition to the movement with opposition to Black Lives Mattering. And it's, yeah. you know, and it's, and it's difficult to, like, I, I tell a short story about, you know, back when I was still in this, you know, whatever this haze was and uh, Barack Obama had just been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, which he richly deserved. Um, is that, and is that earned it by, uh, <laughs> could, could you tell? Um, <laughs> you know, but there, this was back when I was on Facebook and, and, um, and someone, you know, pointed out to me uh, very racistly, uh, he's not done anything to win the prize. And I remember, I mean, it's like that, that NPC meme where they have like the, the little loading sign. I yeah. literally went through that process where I was like, and then I type back, you're just a hater, a hater, ha, <laughs> and then close my laptop. And that was it. Because, you know, because that, that's all, that's as deep as you have to go. You can just be snarky yes. and clever and funny, and that's it. And, you know, there, you don't need, you know, when you win plaudits from your friends for standing up for what's right, there's no need to, to go any deeper into the problem. But I understand that mindset of you're challenging my assumptions. and you're an, you're you're just an, an idiot and you're wrong. You're probably racist. So I'm just going to shut you down and not listen to you. So I, I understand where that's coming from. And I think this is nothing I've been thinking about. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm ranting a lot, but I, oh, I'm so excited. Crazy. I don't get to talk to me about these things very often. <laughs> it's my but um, you know, I think we make a huge mistake by saying that these people are not being logical, because to us they are being illogical, but to them, we are also being illogical. It's just that they are, they're being logical based on the assumptions they make based on their worldview. If you assume that America is racist and it's a racist country and that you know it's built on white supremacy, then of course it's gonna fall in line with a bunch of other assumptions and no other analysis will be necessary. And I think a lot of white people in America don't really understand the, the, the depths of the indoctrination uh, of this idea and this ideology. Um, I mean, by the time I was 10 years old, uh, you know, I, I was weaponizing charges of racism against, uh, against white people. Uh, I had a substitute teacher named Miss Paradise, um, <laughs> you know, and, and I was, you know, I was running my mouth. I was probably like nine, 10 years old in class and, you know, and she rightly called us out and, you know, a few of the black kids, we were like, she's racist. She's racist. And at one point she just snapped. She's like, she's like, I'm not racist. This is back in the nineties. And well, was so, this in Europe? Just a quick, was this in Europe? This was not even this in, in Belgium. This is in, okay. yeah, I was on, I was at a, a, on a military base going to school there, you know, and, and, um, you know, I, there are a lot of Americans that were there as well, but, you know, and I, and I had friends who were Dutch, who were, who were, who were Greek, who were Turkish, who were British, you know, from, from all over, you know, and, you know, it was, it was a great time, but even still, like there was this idea that this white woman is talking to me uh, in this way because she's a racist. And when you grow up in an environment where all your friends and relatives are, are telling you that, your favorite athletes are telling you that, the comedians you watch, the sitcoms you watch are telling you that, if you're a lover of rap or hip hop music, that's a, that's a huge component of, of the culture and, and the music. Uh, you know, you watch the news, you go to school, it's, it's still being reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. So it's very, very difficult. You have to have sympathy for people because They've been told this all their lives, um, you know, by by people that that are very influential uh, and and who matter to them. And 
when you challenge that idea of, well, actually, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe white people don't all hate you. Maybe some of them are kind of cool. Uh, it, 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 it becomes very difficult to, to restructure your, your, your programming because it's so deep. And that's why I get kind of pessimistic about it because I feel like it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And we've got generations now of this kind of thing that that's being taught to people. Um, yeah. I mean, I share your pessimism on, on that a lot, which is, I, I, and I hate to say it, but I mean, you know, when you, when you brought up, for example, fatherlessness in the black community, which has also increased in other communities, but, um, particularly in the black community, um, you know, it it made me think of something that I I think a lot of people don't realize how behind the scenes, the intellectual justification for a lot of these idea ideas has been percolating for decades and, it didn't just burst onto the the scene in 2014 through BLM, but there there's lots of academic uh, groundwork that was laid beforehand. I mean, you made me think of in the late 80s, Carrie knows this, but Kimberly Crenshaw, who was one of the, I would, you know, one of the grandmothers, I guess, of critical race theory, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw explicitly called out um, this idea that... Um, nuclear families or that families that included a mother and a father were somehow preferable to other kinds of families uh, as a as a as a racist idea and that and she criticized the white community for daring to suggest that that black families might be better off with a mother and a father how dare they suggest that because black families are are different and they have different needs and there's no reason for fathers necessarily in black families there there's a different way of having kids and that was equally valid and of course the data doesn't prove that out at all that's totally contrary to all the data we've collected on raising kids and regardless of what color your skin is raising kids with two parents is better than raising kids with one parent um and that's pretty clear and it's a it's a it's an indicator of of success, um, or it's a predictor of failure um, that that correlates pretty well. But this stuff has been lying under the surface, and so I think what's happened is you get a lot of intellectuals that feel like they are armed with this information, so they feel like they're right. They must be right because they've read Kimberly Crenshaw, like Carrie studied this in college, right? You can come out feeling like you're right. I've got this entire body of academic work behind me proving that it's racist to want fathers in black families. And uh, and eventually, you know, that trickles out to BLM and it goes and gets into the mainstream media and it trickles out. And it's not obviously not just that one issue. It's that whole philosophy. And I think we're now just kind of seeing it metastasize into mainstream culture. And I think a lot of people are looking at it going, wait a minute, this is kind of insane. Where did it come from? But it's we've been under the surface for decades. It it also it uh, it coincided with the feminist movement, the women's studies classes the also. Yeah, yeah, attacking the nuclear family. And you're making me think of this book we read in my women's studies classes called um, "Woman on the Edge of Time." I definitely want to do this in book club sometime, Carter. It's a novel. It's a um, it's it's basically a feminist uh, utopian sci-fi novel. It's about the future in a future uh, what a feminist world might look like. 
But if you if I were to read it now, I haven't read it since then. If I were to read it now, I'd probably read it as dystopian, though that was not the intent. And so in this novel, in the future, children are not raised by their, a, a nuclear family. They're raised by a committee that's very uh, diverse in terms of race and sexuality and sex. But and not gender. ideology, I'm sure. But not ideology. And they're raised by this little committee of people. And this is supposed to be ideal. It's presented as ideal. Now we will remove all of the societal indoctrination because we've selected by committee this group of people to raise each child. It's like, I don't know. It's it's a uh, it's it's interesting to me how these all these different parts of social justice have come together. They're all pushing the same thing. They've been absorbed by the same thing. So if you take stuff that I think was necessary for progress, things that were necessary for progress, like the suffragist movement, like the civil rights movement and gay marriage movement, those things, though, have outlasted. They've achieved the measurable goals. And then the organizations and the people who are still in in that uh, making money off of these uh, ideas, it's not like those organizations just fold up and and close shop once you've achieved the measurable goals. It's like they continue on and they get I think they've all kind of become part of the same Marxist identitarian, you know, belief system that's still fighting. Now it's fighting instead of having measurable end goals, it's fighting these vague boogeymen that you can't really measure. Like, what are the goals of the current social justice movement? Well, to fight patriarchy and white supremacy and which is literally everywhere. Right. Well, they're, well, they're, I mean, they, they state explicitly that they, they want a revolution. And what I was going to say is that, you know, I did, I did, I did a show <clears throat> back in uh, 2012 called The Scottsboro Boys. It's, uh, it was created by the same people that did the musical Chicago and uh, Cabaret. And it's, a, it's based on the true story um, in the early 1930s of this group of nine uh, young black boys who were falsely accused of rape uh, by these two white women. And... Um, what I found in my in my research um, is that the Communist Party uh, was very very deeply involved uh, in the civil rights movement. Uh, they they yes. rightly assessed that the um, and 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 again it, because I knew nothing about communism, I didn't know what it what it was or what it meant, um, which I think most people do not. Um, they, you know, they they correctly saw that you know the grievances of these people can be used uh, to to our ends. So this is back in the 30s. Mm-hmm. So this is so the connection between so now even my thinking about the civil rights movement um, and and the the gains that we're told were made during during that period of time. You know, even those now I throw I kind of put into question as you know received opinions that we've been told, but you know, maybe the story is probably a little bit uh, a little bit more complicated. I mean, there, it's one thing to talk about, say, the bus boycott in Selma. Um, and, and you read about just how for months and months, you know, people were carpooling. They were, you know, they were being arrested for loitering by police who, you know, <laughs> for, for walking to work. I mean, it was a really stunning, um, it was a stunning uh, piece of organization and advocacy and activism, but, but from an economic perspective. So when those bus companies stopped, stopped getting that black dollar, they were like, Okay, you niggas can sit in the front now. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so, it, so you know, even then, it's for me, it's less about like, um, you know, we're advocating for rights, but it's more of an economic perspective, you know. And, and when you listen to people like Tom Sowell or Walter E. Williams and, and listen to their perspective and how, um, you know, I mean, money talks and and, and it does and accomplishes accomplishes a lot of things. 
um, you know, you just sort of, you start to sort of think to yourself, like maybe something else is going on here. Maybe maybe I've been maybe I've been lied to. Maybe there's more than one way to skin a cat. Maybe you know maybe freedom can be achieved by by different means. But to go back to 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 the broader point in your conversation of this conversation is, you know, as far as what they want, I mean, I I, I think they. And it's tough to explain this to people without sounding like some crazy conspiracy theorist. Yeah. It's just because you've, you've done, you know, I mean, I've just started my journey, but you, you do it, you're doing the reading and you, and you see these things and you make these connections that are actually true. And, um, you know, they want, they want to overthrow the quote unquote system. That's what they want. They say they want a revolution. That's what they're calling it explicitly. Um, you know, the, these ideas of patriarchy or, or meritocracy or, you know, th that infamous poster that was put out by the Smithsonian, the African-American Museum, you know, in D.C. about, you know, uh, uh, showing up on time white is white culture. supremacy and reason yeah, it, is it, white it, supremacy. Punctuality, yeah. Anything that could actually lead to you living a better and more responsible yep. life is the domain of white people. And going back to something that, that, you, that you said, Carter, you know, it's, it's one thing if you're in a poor working neighborhood you know, I mean, when I was uh, 13 or 14, there was one day, you know, I'm down in Virginia at this point. And, uh, you know, and it's not a rich area of Virginia whatsoever. It's not a slum, but it, it ain't the rich, you know. And for what for whatever reason, one day we were supposed to go to school. Um, we were bused to school like, like Kamala Harris wasn't. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm standing on the corner. This bus is not coming for whatever reason. And there's this other black kid that's, that's there with me from the neighborhood. You know, he's smoking a black and mild, you know, he's 14 or whatever. He looks me up and down. You know, I was not a cool kid. I don't know if you could tell, but I was never a cool kid. And he just goes, you're one of the smart ones, ain't you? And at the time, I thought to myself, well, here go, here we go. You know, I'm going to get made fun of because I don't wear, you know, I don't sag my pants. And I, you know, I try to do my homework and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, it happens in a lot of like, I guess, lower or working class sort of uh, environments where, you know, the it's a crab bucket uh, mentality and, and the kids who try to strive for something, you know, they get beat up or they get made fun of um, they get bullied for being nerds or geeks. But then when you're black, there's the added calumny of, well, you're not even who you are. You're not even black because you're trying to, you know, <laughs> because you turn your homework in on time. Yep. And at the time I was offended. But then later on, in hindsight, I said to myself, wait a minute, he is differentiating himself from me. I don't know if there's any white people going around knocking on doors being like, hey, Darkie, you're never going to be shit. Like it was him who who was differentiating himself from me. You know, when I was the kind of kid, I, I was helping some of the other kids with their spelling, you know, and with their handwriting, you know, and, and I, was, I was a smart kid. But what's amazing to me now is that it was it used to just be the, the, the poor people, poorer people who would say you're just trying to be white. You know, this is this is, you know, you, you talk a certain way. You sound like a white person. You're trying to be white, this, that. But now it's filtered up into these educated elite uh, classes to the point where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing with with doc with with doctorates and people with PhDs and degrees who are saying that striving for economic uh, and financial success is another form of striving for whiteness. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but there's a lot of Japanese and Nigerian businessmen who feel differently about that. You know what I mean? It's 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 yeah. the strangest thing now. It's the strangest thing. It's that's it's a, it's in all these a, sectors now. That's an excellent point because you're right. It it is it is now an elite kind of opinion that's being it's being um, broadcasted by people who have achieved success and who went to elite institutions, but they're saying that it's 
somehow this is a, a, a whiteness thing or you're, you know, if you, I, I don't know. I, I think that's, that's a great it's point. It's always everybody else. It's always everybody else. It's like they're, you know, it's not me who has the PhD and, and, you know, went and, you know, went to study and has this cushy job, you know, at the New York times or at, at a university or whatever. It's everyone else. That's the problem. It's not me. Who's, who's striving for whiteness by, by, uh, by pursuing tenure. It's everyone else. So it's, it's always, again, you know, once you step out of it and you see just how ridiculous and, and how contradictory, self-contradictory so much of this crap is and, and how hypocritical and how hollow so many of these people are, I mean, it's really astonishing. And it's, and it's amazing to see people just continue to fail upwards to the point where they're receiving, I don't know, Emmy Awards for bullshitting about COVID. <laughs> yeah. I'm I, not going to name names. No, no. I, I, I have no idea who you're talking about. No idea. No, um, me either. I don't know where that came from. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought up, though, the revolution aspect of this, because I do think I do think they are not united in terms of a positive goal. But all these all these disparate groups on on what we'll call maybe the radical left, they are united in the destruction of Western civilization, which sounds very grandiose, but they are all united against a common enemy. Um, and that enemy is basically the current system. It's it's Western civilization as such, uh, enlightenment values, the you know, kind of the the kind of classically liberal ideas that that uh, that helped America prosper. And I it does sound like a conspiracy theory to say things. I'm glad you're the one who brought it up, but it because it does sound conspiratorial when people say. I think a lot of people say things like, or especially conservatives, they have this knee jerk or gut reaction that like, oh, these, these people are commies. And I don't, I don't think commies is a very nuanced word to describe what they believe. I don't, I don't think that's technically correct, but, um, directionally, there's actually a lot of truth in, in a very, with very broad strokes, they're kind of commies. This has been going on. Um, it started with the, you know, it was it was radical Marxism. It came through the Frankfurt School into the U.S. Um, it it picked up some postmodernism. It developed into critical theory, and it's this it's this amalgamation of, I would say, lots of different paths to some variant of Marxism, all kind of <laughs> marching together. Lots of different Marxist Marxist variant ideologies all marching together against the same enemy. And it sounds conspiratorially and crazy to say, well, actually, this has been going on since the 30s. <laughs> but you're not wrong. It has been going on since the 30s. And this is just the culmination of that. I think that I think the lawyer's name, uh, I, I want to say his name is Stanley Leibowitz or whatever, uh, was a lawyer that, that was hired to, to defend the Scottsboro boys. And it's side note, it was kind of funny because the fact that he was Jewish made him completely unpopular with he was almost <laughs> as unpopular as the black people down in down in Scottsboro, Alabama. But um, but, you know, it, it, but he was funded by by the Communist Party. I, I believe so. I mean, I'm sure somebody will fact check me. But, you know, when it, it's just you, you see these things. It's just the truth. It's just what happened. And you know what it it makes me think of is that did you ever see the Brett Weinstein lecture called how the magic trick is done? Mm -hmm. There's a, it's a great lecture where he talks about a little bit about what happened at Evergreen to him. But one part that's really interesting is he's talking about people who are pushing sort of social justice forward. That's my phrasing, but he's saying 
a lot of times you're walking down a path with someone, you think you're on the same page, but, and I'm totally paraphrasing, it's been a while since I've seen the video, but you think you're on the same page. And so you have actual liberals walking shoulder to shoulder with these identitarian Marxists who want to destroy Western civilization. And they think they're on the same path because they have the same goals to a certain point. Once you've reached those goals, they're on a very different trajectory. And in fact, the liberals are their enemies. But a lot of liberals don't seem to realize this yet. So to take it to your, back to your point, Clifton, to talk about the 1930s, the fact that the Communist Party had was was infiltrating and pushing um, certain aspects of uh, women's liberation and the civil rights movement. And, you know, like the International Women's Day was started by the Socialist Party of America. It was a, it was a oh, wow. socialist. Yeah. In, in the 20s. And it's it's it doesn't mean that the movement didn't achieve things that were necessary and good. It just means you've got different types of people with different motivations working on a common goal. And then once that goal is achieved beyond that goal, they're going on two different paths. And that is hard to talk about without sounding like you're some crazy conspiracy there is, or that, or without sounding like you don't like the fact that women got the vote or something, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, you know, I, I, I would see people throw around the term uh, cultural Marxism. And I had, I was like, I have no idea what that means. If you talk to some people, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this as well. They'll say, well, it's, it's, a, it's an anti-Semitic uh, trope. And, I've seen that, yeah. you know, it, which, which is, I've only seen that coming from, I guess, more left-leaning people. I, I've never seen Jews brought up um, in any of these discussions. That's, that's a, that's a non sequitur. But it wasn't until I read uh, the Communist Manifesto that I actually began to see the parallels and understood why, okay, Marx's views on social or on, on, on economics are simply being trans, transfused or transplanted into views on gender or yes. race or sexual identity. And, you know, and once you begin to see those connections and those parallels, you know, at least once I began to see them, I said, oh, I understand because the same flaws in Marx's thinking, I feel like Marx, you know, I mean, he's not completely wrong about, you know, I guess class conflict and that sort of a thing in, in a broader sense, at least in that, um, in the manifesto. But I think the mistake that he makes is that, uh, or at least what I read, I was like, well, he's not taking into account the individual abilities of people or the the, the different abilities of, of different groups and subgroups and cultures to, to move beyond their station. And you know, it's a collectivist sort of mindset, and I see the same sort of flaws in thinking in, in, in the social justice uh, in the social justice movements. It's very collectivized. It's not, you know, they they even when I talk about uh, uh, black people, for instance, you know, it's 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 astonishing to me. You know, we talk about how Nigerians and West Indians, in particular, do very well in this country, particularly Nigerians. And you know, but I've had people come back to me and say, well, you know, blacks in America were colonized, so. Uh, they, they, they can't achieve the same things that Nigerians uh, have. And I'm thinking, you know, it's just, there's no, there's no attempt to grapple with the idea or engage with the idea that, you know, I mean, certain groups just do certain things differently and they achieve certain different results as a, uh, as a consequence there. I mean, there was a, there's a stereotype of hardworking West Indians to the point where if you remember the show in living color, there was a recurring sketch called Amon, hey Heyman, 
that featured that if you do you remember this, that it, it had Keenan Ivory Wayans and like and you know the rest of his family, and they were they were they were a family of I guess they were Jamaicans, and the, the main punchline of the sketch was like, "What you mean you can't find a job? Are you kidding me? I'm the I'm the garbage collector, the security guard, the teacher, the gardener, the florist. I've got all this. You know what I mean? It's like the yeah. dishwasher." You know, it was like, we, we all have 21 jobs. You can't find one job. So there's a stereotype that's been really, that, that's really deeply ingrained that West Indians just, you know, they, they're hardworking people. And I've, I've had people yeah, get angry at me saying, man, what's up with this, this, this idea that, that Jamaicans just work harder than everybody else, man? Like, what's, like, what's that about? And I'm like, dude, black people were saying it back in the 90s. So, you know what I mean? By the like, way. I just love that in this conversation so far, you've brought up Patrice O'Neill and In Living Color, both of both of which I don't think would be allowed to be uh, successful if they originated today. You because they couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. You couldn't do it. I mean, and the thing about In Living Color is, they, I mean, they were ruthless, and you know, but it was so it was so goddamn funny. Yeah. And. The, the, and that's why you give me or a movie like um, they played in Central Park a few years ago, a couple of summers ago. The movie Airplane, which is one of the funniest huh. movies ever made, in movie. my opinion. <laughs> yes, I love that movie, and and it still and it still works today, by the way. So I was out, you know, I got a little stoned. I went out to this park, and you know, with this, <laughs> I think it was like maybe three, five hundred people that were there watching, you know, on the screen. And when you watch it with a group of people, you understand how genius that movie is. There, there's a joke in just about every frame, but even the timing, you know, the timing of the actors and the timing of the edits you know, are, coincide with where the laughter falls. It's, I mean, it's a work of genius, but I mean, you can't, I mean, there's like random titties on screen. There's black <laughs> people, you know, speaking jive. There, you know, you got a whole scene of like a dude beating up a bunch of religious people in the airport. Like there's so much shit that you can't get away with now <laughs> that, you know, you, you got a nun singing for this little girl, you know, who's like dying. You know, it, it's, it's, there's a whole scene where like people are lining up to beat the shit out of this old woman who's 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 going into hysterics yeah. on the yeah. hysterics on the, on the plane. plane. You know, you, there's no way you could do that today. You couldn't do in living color today. Patrice no. O'Neill was ahead of his time. You know, rest yeah. in peace. Um, you know, he just his the sorts of things that he was talking about. You know, I mean, it would make him completely taboo now. And yeah, you know, and that's this is where I, I sort of feel like. I I become worried about the industry as a whole because, you know, I don't know if either of you are familiar with what's going on in the comic book industry right now, but you know, yeah. it's it's essentially, I mean, DC and Marvel are are collapsing, and you know, they're putting out books that are that are selling poorly. I mean, people say like, well, digital isn't doing that that badly, but I mean, people want to read comic books; they want to have the actual physical copy there to turn back and forth from pages and you know, look at the panels and everything. There's something about the tactile feeling of, of holding a book in your hand but marvel and dc are collapsing because they've they've prioritized activism and advocacy and the social justice um ideology over actually you know doing cool stories and meanwhile people who have been hounded by or hated by people within the industry are actually doing they're they're crowdfunding their own projects so yes. while Marvel and DC are laying people off, you have these other people who, you know, I mean, they're Republicans and they're conservatives, but they're crowdfunding their own books. They're making five, six, sometimes seven figures, um, you know, and, and launching their own books. They're hiring colorists, they're hiring pencilers, they're hiring writers, they're paying printing presses. 
um, and shipping companies. So these people are actually succeeding during a recession at a time where Marvel and DC are falling apart. And I feel like my fear is that the same thing is going to happen to the entertainment industry on some level. There, like there's there's a bubble that's going to pop at some point. You know, there's all this content. I mean, the, the era of the movie star is pretty much over, especially in an era when a tweet can make you famous. And we have, you know, a bunch of uh, let's call them mediocre personalities with huge Instagram followings. You know what I mean? So there's all this competition from YouTube or Twitch or, you know, any kind of streaming service. But, you know, video games, people really aren't they, they don't want to, you know, go to the, the a film, the latest film in their beloved franchise and be told about how you know, everything is white supremacist. But if you want to be preached at, you go to church. You don't go yeah. to the cinema. Yep. And, you know, I, I, I constantly hear people who are like, yeah, I'm tuning out. I cut the cable. I don't go to the movies anymore. I don't watch TV anymore. I don't, you know, I don't do that. I don't listen to music anymore because it's all just suffused with this with this activism. And, and it's not that you can't put your politics into a story. I mean, I use the example of someone like Denai Guerrero, who's well known for Walking Dead and Black Panther. People don't know it, but she's a brilliant writer. She launched her career as a writer, and she wrote this play called The Convert, which is set in the, uh, I want to say, 1885 in Zimbabwe. I guess it would be Zaire then. And it's right on the cusp of the British colonization uh, of, of Zimbabwe. And instead of writing this, she's smart, so she didn't write this screed of, like, you know, white Europeans bad. She simply dramatized the effects that this new culture coming in um, had on the the old culture, you know what I mean? So the, so the conflict is between the mm -hmm. Africans who want to preserve their own culture. That, that's what the main character struggle is about. It's the place called The Convert versus people who want to keep it the way it was and people who want to benefit from it, but they're still kind of torn. Like, it's very interesting. So you can you can you can put a, a you can have a political issue um, in your play and dramatize it and even change minds because you're appealing to emotions. But that's that's based on good storytelling craft and 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 strong acting. That, that has nothing to do with sitting people down and just yelling at them about your beliefs for two fucking hours. Nobody wants to hear that. Right. I think I think you've hit the nail on the head because I think it it comes from the problem with with what's happening in all aspects of the arts with wokeness is that it's not the fact that you've got a deeper message other than entertaining. That that is your goal. It's the fact of where you how you prioritize it. Is the is your ideology your ideology or whatever beliefs or whatever meaning you're trying to get across? Is that more important to you than the entertainment value? If it's comedy, is it more important to you than the laughter? You know. And so I, I remember when I first started leaving the social justice bubble, there was a, a piece on uh, Saturday Night Live that was just not funny. It was a fem it was a feminist piece. It was a music video. You they don't did. say. Yeah. <laughs> funny enough. Sorry, life isn't that funny anymore. But yeah, so it was a piece that wasn't funny and I posted about it and I still had a lot of uh, my old social justice friends in my circles back then. And a couple of them started arguing with me and they flat out said, it doesn't matter to me that it's not funny. The message is good. And that's enough. And uh, that's not enough. Yeah, that's not enough. It's comedy. It's a comedy show. It needs to be funny. And they just get the they get the order because this ideology becomes primary wherever it moves. It becomes the most important thing most of the time, at least the way I've seen it play out. Um, it becomes more important even 
in companies, it becomes more important than profits. That's why you're talking about Marvel and DC. They're not doing well with comic book sales, but why? Well, this ideology has become more important than than even profits. But first, it's become more important than story, good storytelling in the comics. Secondly, it's more important than profits even. It's, it's kind of crazy how it becomes the all-consuming uh, goal. But I have a question for you. I've been, this is something that's been coming up lately um, in conversations I've been having on this channel and on other channels, uh, Nerdrotic. So we're talking about the need to create our own stories and to use emotion. You have to you have to talk, speak to the emotions. You can't just talk, change people's minds with facts. You need to tell a good story. And as you're pointing out, independent comic book creators are figuring out how to do that in that medium. And they're crowdfunding and they're making comics um, that people are buying. How do you think it's going to happen in the acting world? If it does affect, like you're saying, if it does start to affect a lot of these large entertainment studios and productions, and if people tune out and stop watching Netflix and stop going to the movies, how can independent actors and producers and how, how can it emerge? I, I know you're doing uh, Shakespeare pieces now on your channel. Is trying, that yeah, a yeah. part of it or is that like how do yeah. people, I, I think it's a much harder thing to say, um, like to, to make a movie than it is to make a comic book. Not that it's not easy to make a comic book. I'm, I'm not that it's easy to make a comic book, just that the movie, making a movie or making a, um, a comedy series or something seems so much more daunting to people to do independently. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, first of all, I mean, actually, I, I watch uh, I watch Nerd Roddick's uh, channel. I, I like him a lot. And, you know, th there's this sort of among that milieu, if you will, there, there's this. This schadenfreude about the destruction of Hollywood, which I I can't stand behind because anyone I mean, if you watch Marvel movies, I mean, you stay behind for the credits, you see you see all the people that are working. So. Mm -hmm. Even though you know you might not like what something that like Chris Evans or Mark Ruffalo tweets, you know, don't can't you know even though these actors, first of all, movie stars or whatever are the top you know one percent of the industry. You know what I mean? There's a bunch of people who you know they they, they hustle, they grind. You don't know who their names are, but they work all the time and and they live comfortable lives. And you know people are people hustle, but. It's not just you know actors and and celebrities that will be affected if Hollywood you know goes away. It's not just writers or or directors and producers and actors. I mean you have uh, electricians, you have carpenters, you have uh, seamstresses, you know people in wardrobe, um, crew members, um, uh, 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 caterers, you know restaurant restaurateurs. There's a bunch of people involved in making a movie. You know, I, I, I've done guest stars on multiple series and, you know, in, in southern uh, southern states. And what I love about it is that, the, you know, they hire local, you know, people who are, you know, uh, assistant directors or, or PAs or production assistants, um, script supervisors. You know, there are people coming from the community, even background actors. So, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's an industry where a lot of people um, are able to get work. And so if that collapses, it's not just these, these actors who annoy you so much and don't know anything. It's a, a whole constellation of people that are, that are, whose lives are being destroyed. So I would, you know, so, so it's bigger than just like, oh, I'm an actor. So I wouldn't have, I won't have a job if the industry dies. No, I mean, it, it's a whole, it, it's, it's way bigger than that. So I can't cheer on the, the destruction of it, but, but to your question, um, I think 
I mean, I actually am inspired by these independent comic book creators. I think that's where it's going to go. I mean, I said before that the era, I think the era of the movie star died a long time ago. Um, you know, the, the franchise is the star now. And, you know, again, I think people are feeling this cultural malaise and and this sort of death, you know, I mean, even the Marvel movies, which I love, I mean, I, I ugly cried during Avengers Endgame, like at least four times. <laughs> but you know, these are still stories that are, ad these are movies that are adaptations of decades old stories. Um, so I think what, I think what the future is going to be, and this is something that, that I, that I want to do. I think it's just, I think we're going, we're splitting off into niches. One of the, one of the cool things about the modern era now is that you can find your own tribe, you can find your own audience and you can have a direct rapport and connection with your audience who, you know, in, in the spirit of, uh, I don't know what, what the term is, but who, who will say, I like what you do. I'm going to give you money and support you because I like what you do. Patronage. Patronage. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I, I think that that is a brilliant model. And I feel like, you know, in an era where fewer people give a shit about who, you know, Chris Pratt is, even though I love Chris Pratt, but PewDiePie has like 50 million subscribers. I think the way to go now is for individuals to build up their own platforms and then to fund their own projects. Um, the, the only issue I see, the only potential issue I see with that is, is the unions. And stop me if you heard this before, unions being mm -hmm. a problem. Um, you know, I feel like a lot of the industry is sort of not really, I mean, you know, there's a thing about the left can't meme. Part of that is because they're not really attuned to internet culture in the way that people who are outside of that bubble really are. And, you, you know, when, when I talk to people about platforms like Patreon, for instance, which I know, you know, people have mixed opinions about for a variety of reasons, very good reasons. Um, but just the idea that a platform exists where you can create your own stuff and people will support you directly for it um, is sort of mind blowing. And I think if you're a performer, um, you know, if, if you, if you have, if you know the right people and you can get the right money together, you can, and you know, you have the right equipment, which is not expensive. You know, people are making movies on their smartphones now. Um, you know, you can get, you, you can get decent equipment and have a good product. Um, I think that's, I think that's where it needs to go. Um, it just as, you know, the, the, I guess the traditional or legacy media or whatever is, is now being challenged and in many ways, uh, superseded by the alternative media. Um, who's held who's held to account by their own audience um, in, in a brilliant way. You know, I think that's what's that's where the entertainment industry should. I think that's the direction it should go. And it should be an, an alt entertainment um, industry where people are making their own projects and they say, you know what, fuck the system. We don't need the system anymore. You know, what if we got to a point where you got so big yeah. where, you you know, you have a following the size of, of, of a PewDiePie just based on your work. And then you have, you know, Broadway producers coming to you. You have Hollywood producers coming to you and saying, we'll finance your projects. We'll do this. We'll that. We'll, we'll, we'll do that for you. Please come, you know, be in our show or whatever. Um, you know, that, that's a possibility. But as it stands right now, you know, I just I, I, I don't know what, especially after COVID. I, I, that, I mean, and I can rant about that for a long time as far as how I feel like much of the industry has kind of sat back and allowed itself to be killed. Um, but, you know, that I think that's 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 where I'd like to go is, mm -hmm. is doing my own thing. Because again, it's like, I mean, James Baldwin once wrote, you know, why would you want to integrate into a burning house? Um, mm -hmm. You know, why would I want to move up in, in an industry which seems um, 
which seems con- intent on on destroying itself. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's my long-winded answer to your question. Yeah. Can I push back oh, I on the, the Hollywood thing just for a second? Because I'm not sure I understand exactly. When I think of Hollywood imploding, I don't think of that long list of credits going away. I think of the distribution companies and the, the, that mm. top tier of Hollywood imploding. And if you look at what Amazon and Netflix are doing, not that they solve the woke problem, but they do replace the distribution channels and the financing channels, and they basically just hire the production companies. And I'm sure if you look at an Amazon movie or a Netflix movie and you look at the list of credits, I'm sure there's that Venn diagram overlaps with mainstream movies from Fox and Warner Brothers quite significantly, I would guess. Don't you think that like, even if quote Hollywood implodes, all those people you're worried about aren't actually going to lose jobs. They'll just be, they'll just be the tools that will be hired to go to whomever else is producing movies. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think so. I think it's a good point. I feel like what we're both talking about is, you know, whatever the industry is now, it's not what it's going to continue to be. It's going to morph into something um, new. I love the point that. Um, people like Eric Weinstein and uh, Jordan Peterson make about, you know, it, it was, it was thought initially that audiences were kind of too stupid and, and you, and Carrie, I don't know if you saw this, but there's, there is a tendency um, in, in the industry to really look down on your audience and think that they're stupid, but, oh, yeah. you know, now we have the emergence of these long form series that are really complex and people are like, oh yeah, we want more of this. Um, so, and yet at the same time, even though these streaming services, I mean, there's way too many of them at this point, but even though these streaming services are taking off with this long form content and you have a platform like Quibi, which tried to, you know, say, okay, we're going to have these 10 to 15 minute episodes, you know, because that's how people are consuming content now. And it failed. People, people rejected it. So I, I, I wonder if, People still want, you know, more traditional, you know, or, or mainstream entertainment, you know, to the level of sort of what you're talking about, Carter, with, with the same kind of expertise and crafts, craftspersonship. Um, um, <laughs> How PC, I, but, good job. I think. Oh, yeah, I, I try. But at the same time, um, uh, audiences seem to like, like, it seems like they still want those sort of old, old fashioned kinds of storytelling. Um, yes. Yes. So maybe it's more, it's going somewhere different. Yeah. Just anecdotally, I think that's true. I mean, this year, I, the past two years, but especially this year during COVID, I've just been watching a lot of old movies again. And I I don't watch a lot of new ones except for documentaries. And, uh, you know, just, just anecdotally seeing what friends are sharing on social media and in our unsafe space group on Telegram and stuff, people are returning to movies from the 80s, 90s. 70 from the living color, uh, in living color era, you know, pe- people are, are going back to these old comedies. And, um, I, I think, I think there's this nostalgia. I mean, there's always a nostalgia for, th- for, you know, with every generation for, um, generations past, but I think there's this added kind of this, this, this new element to the nostalgia. That's it's, it's not just nostalgia for these decades of a time, past, but it's also for a time specifically that allowed more freedom and creativity in terms of humor. And, um, I think people do want that. I mean, I would love nothing more than to, to open up my Netflix or Amazon or whatever your, your, whatever your streaming service of choices, I would love nothing more than to see 
a lot of great options there to watch, but I just don't see that anymore. You know, occasionally there'll be some series or something I want to get into, but it's never like, oh, I can't wait to see this new movie. I don't have those moments anymore. I used to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I I think about that myself, you know, and I make another parallel to the comic book industry. I mean, most of the stuff that I read and and the stuff that sells really well is old. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's like classic runs of books. And, you know, I and I think to myself, you know, I I can't think of a lot of things that that are or, or and I, I'm not I'm not super huge on pop culture, so you know I could be wrong. I, mean, I still see things every once in a while that I'm like, oh yeah, that, that's really great. But I don't. It's hard for me to think. My 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 intuition tells me that a lot of a lot of work being produced now, be it t- TV, be it film, be it theater. You know, I don't see it having the same staying power as as Shakespeare yeah. or you know or Greek tragedies, which are thousands of years old, or you know, or, or the Russian playwright Chekhov. You know, who's one of my favorite writers. Um, I, I don't, I don't see this kind of work enduring because, as we were saying before, I think the activism has has taken over. But I think there's also something else at play in terms of in terms of what we value as as a culture and as a society. Um, I mean, it's interesting when I go down YouTube rabbit holes um, and I watch like, you know, a video from the Bee Gees. I mean, I like disco music. Yeah. Um, I can't understand why people hate it so much. But why? You scroll down. I don't know, man. I mean, people hate happy music, I guess. But that's you scroll actually, down. You're joking, but that's the reason. I, I feel like that's probably what it yeah, is. Yeah, that's the reason. Um, like, it's like, how, it's too happy. how can you hate on Earth, Wind & Fire? You know what I mean? Right. But I scroll down to the comments section and you see people who are like, I'm 13 years old, I'm 14 years old, I'm 15. And I and I wish that the music that we have today was the same, was as good as the music from this era. And, you know, I did this experiment one, one year. It was a throwback Thursday. So I looked at the Billboard Top 25 uh, hip hop uh, singles from... 1994 and 2014 and in 1994 there were over 20 different artists that were represented on this on this on this list i mean you had like salt and pepper and mc light and tribe called quest and you know just all these <laughs> mc hammer um yeah like all these artists that were represented and people were looking at them and people were listening to them at the same time you know and and then at that time you know you had nas dropped illmatic um uh, the roots dropped their first album uh, uh, Jay Z was about to drop Reasonable Doubt. Common was about to drop, you know, uh, One Day It'll All Make Sense. I mean, you had all this stuff going on. Wu Tang came out with Into the 36, mm-hmm. uh, 36 Chambers. All this stuff was happening at the same time, and people were listening to it. NWA, you know what I mean? Yeah. But then I looked at the, at the 2014 list, and the, and as <laughs> the 1994 list had 20 over 20 artists on it, the the 2014 list had seven. It was like, you know, Justin Timberlake somehow, Eminem, uh, Jay-Z, like Macklemore, and like a couple of other people. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's, I mean, I, I mentioned the phrase uh, cultural malaise uh, early on. There, there's, I think it's a combination of, I mean, they call it like participation trophy culture. You're not allowed to be harsh with people or, or tell them when they're doing something wrong. The, the idea of when you increasingly uh, make ideas like craft or, or discipline, you know, radioactive, when you look back at these old plays or old, um, old works of art and say, well, these are dead white men. And so you yeah. make them poisonous to explore. You know, I mean, one of, the, one of the things that's been most gratifying about being an actor is that, or a classically trained one, you know, with, you're reading a bunch of old plays and what you learn 
is that even though civilizations change and, and social mores change, customs change, what motivates people has, has remained constant all throughout human history. And you don't, you, you are missing out if you, if you, if you are not engaging with material like, you know, Macbeth or, or Hamlet and, you know, you look at the Macbeths and, you know, I mean, Lady Macbeth is such a fascinating character. She starts out the play, you know, pretty much, I mean, she has this great scene where she's like, man, I wish I was a man because I'm surrounded by all these like pussies basically. And, and I want this power. I want this. I want that. She, you know, when her husband, you know, doesn't go through with murdering the king, she's like, you know, what are you? I mean, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but you know, what's wrong with you? What you're weak. You know, you, you, what, you, you, you get your balls chopped off, like what happened? Mm -hmm. And so she talks all that shit in the first act, but then what happens in the second act? We see her, she loses her mind, she's sleepwalking, she obviously can't stand the strain of what she's done, what she's been a part of, and she ends up killing herself. What an amazing kind of journey about the, the you know, be careful what you wish for, about, you know, the, the, the trappings of, of ill-gotten power. I mean, yeah. these kinds of, of, of lessons, I mean, you know, and, 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 I mean, you're just not getting all that. And, and the language that Shakespeare uses, the craftsmanship, part of the reason that we still do his plays is that he, he was so much more psychologically attuned to who we are as people. I mean, he was a philosopher as well. He was very wise and brilliant with language, but, you know, he also understood people. And you, that level of craftsmanship and, and, and story and storytelling ability, you know, when, when you say to people, well, it's Shakespeare, it's a dead white man, and you're not getting that kind of influence. I mean, you can have that kind of, you, you can read the plays and be inspired and build on what they, on what they did. I mean, Lynn yeah. Nottage, she, she's a, she's a black woman. Uh, one, I think she's one of our greatest playwrights living right now. Um, two-time Pulitzer prize winner. Although we, I know Pulitzers are sort of, I mean, they just kind of give away like, like candy these days, but she's actually great. Yeah. And, you know, she just, you know, she writes plays that are about people, even though they have, you know, maybe more feminist sort of uh, underpinnings and, and, and they're about broader, you know, sociopolitical issues. But it's like, this is a woman who clearly has studied her craft and she's using that to tell these really interesting stories through, through her lens. And, you know, I, I just think that there's been a, when you, when you tell people that you know, I guess these old ideas, you know, <coughs> you know, Maoism in our democracy. <laughs> there we go. When you tell people that these old ideas are bad and, you know, you start to see a degradation in, in all of these, all of these things, you know, and it's starting to creep its way into the sciences now. Just, yeah. It's not just in the arts. It's in, we see the destruction, how this act activism has destroyed the journalist, the, the, the journalism industry. Um, all of the sort of old school things that, that people knew, all this old knowledge that people knew um, and that was passed down is just being it's just being cut off now. And it's, and it's not and it's not as though you have you, you can be like, I understand the conservative position of wanting to preserve what works, but you also can't be you, I don't think you can be too closed off to new ideas and new ways of, of yeah. seeing things and thinking outside of the box. But at the same time, I mean. There's a reason that we still read Aristotle's poetics. It's because what he what he wrote down works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and he was writing at a time where he didn't have to worry about people's feelings. He could just tell the truth. And um, you're, you're making me think of. Uh, oh, go ahead. You're making me think of in in. So you're talking about Shakespeare and playwrights, and you know, in the past day, I've seen this blow up on Twitter around disrupt the text. 
which is this movement to uh, replace the literary classics in schools because they're so straight or white or male or whatever, what have you, to replace them with books from marginalized people, with women, queer authors, black authors. And it, I don't know why they always focus on removing things instead of just adding. But they do. They go after an attack and say, we must remove these things. These classics are boring. They're not relevant. They're written by straight white guys. And part of me thinks is, it's like, yeah, they don't want us reading. Like you're saying, there's a reason we still read Aristotle. There's a reason we still read now. Um, you know, the, some of the books we've been covering in Unsafe Space Book Club, like the classics, you know, 1984, Animal Farm, Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451, those books are extremely relevant. And like you're saying, those those authors recognize something in the human psyche in a different time in history that, that still applies today. Um, and with music, uh, my boyfriend who you met, he's he's mm -hmm. sort of educating me a bit on music history. And there's been the same movement I've seen happening where they want to remove composers who are, you know, they're too straight and white and male. Well, you know, I didn't know this, but he's, he's talked to me about how Bach, you know, Bach is, you can trace, um, in some ways he's sort of like the first, uh, heavy metal in the way mm. that he composed things and, and would shred, you know, you can sort of trace some of these things back. And there's, there's a reason that they are important. It's not because they're straight and white or men, it's it's because of the impact that they had on other composers and on other musicians, and and instead of just adding to the list, why why are we so hell bent? Why is this ideology so hell bent on removing important stepping blocks? Um, I don't I don't get it, but I see it, I do see it everywhere. Um, well, well, I mean, we mentioned the four. You referenced the four olds. Basically, it's that's. That's kind of what it is, right? It's you've got to to start over and to rewrite. To, the The Marxist philosophy is based on the premise that you have that humans can be reduced to like a tabula rasa psychologically and imprinted with the 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 Marxist programming to make the utopia work. And so to to get to tabula rasa, you've got to destroy the everything that's brought us to this point it can't be that's why they have year zeros that's why they destroy the four olds right that's why they do this because all of that other stuff threatens the uh the pristine implementation of the this this utopian ideology right i don't i don't know maybe maybe one of you remember i don't know if it was chester i feel like it was chesterton but it probably wasn't there's that phrase that i'm there's that uh aphorism that i'm paraphrasing about you don't remove a fence unless you first understand you come across a fence in the road and like don't remove it unless you first understand why the fence was put up in why the first place there. and then you can remove the fence. Um, and that came to mind when you were talking about this balance between conservatism and uh, and actually trying new things. And it seems like we're just removing mm -hmm. the fences at this point. Yeah, we're, it's. There is this strange. Um, and, you know, and again, I've been in an acting school. I've been in so many rehearsal studios and, and, and on sets and, hey, Tiger, um, you know, and, and people just, um, people, 
I think they're, they're I mean, you just you get you can't you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know what I mean? There's 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 certain just elements of like just dramatic structure, um, what's called dramaturgy, um, you, you know that that work. And they found that it that it that it works. And I mean, you know, in, in New York, in the New York theater scene, I mean, I I, I kind of stopped going to shows because I felt like they were just making like as much as people complain about. Uh, quote unquote wokeness in Hollywood. I mean, it's 10 times more concentrated in the theater world. And for years, I, I kind of just stopped going to shows because I felt like they were just making shows for themselves. And then they would, then they would complain like, well, our, our subscription rates are dropping and people aren't coming to see our, our shows and we can't, you know, get audiences. Like what's, what's going on. And part of the, you know, I just, I feel like, well, You've sort of demonized all these elements of classical storytelling, and and you you know, and you're focusing on these narrow issues, and and you're you're elevating your activism and your advocacy over just solid crafts, craftspersonship, crafts craftsmanship. Um, so you, you craftsmanship. <laughs> you, 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 so yeah, uh, I see what you did there. Um, so you, you you so you know, it, so people just aren't responding to it, you know, and and. Um, I, again, I just I just fear that it's going to lead to this, you know, this collapse, this fall off. You know, I think I think theater is sort of going away of opera, and in a sense that it's sort of this luxury for the bourgeois. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I was I was doing this um, this Zoom rehearsal. Like everyone uses Zoom now, and everyone hates it uh, for obvious reasons. And I'm listening to, you know, again, wonderful people who are immensely talented and, and gifted at what they do, but to 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 hear them speak, I mean, they're obviously educated, and 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 you know, a lot of these people are successful as as actors. They may not be household names, but they don't they don't need another job, and you know that that's where they make their money. And but they're talking about, you know, they're talking as if they're oppressed and downtrodden, and that's sort of how they view the world. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is such a a, a bubble of. I, it's just that there's something about it that it seems like it's isolated from the from the outside world and from and from artistic merit. I don't know. It's what's and it's, how uh, can you telegraph the experiences of others of like the common man, the common sir, if you're not sir. connected Careful. to the outside world? Yeah, if you're not, if you don't have that, because as you talked about early in this interview, acting is about, you know emoting and empathizing and telegraphing well, you stories. Just, you, just, you just have to be, you just have to be curious, you know, just be curious about the world around you. Be curious, be vulnerable. Uh, it's part of our jobs to be impressionable and to be empathetic. And when you, when you, when you've constructed a world where you are not allowed to be empathetic to certain large groups of people, it's going to have an impact on, on your work and on your writing. I mean, once when I had my shift, I felt like my work as an actor got better because I stopped living in this world where, um, where I, I was worried about what I was portraying on stage because, you know, I mean, I would be panicked sometimes, but like, you know, well, what are the black audience members going to think about me? What were the white people, you know, are they getting the wrong idea? And I'll tell you a quick story, you know, I'll try to make it really fast, but, you know, I was working at, I was an intern at this um, prestigious theater company in the Berkshires, just like back in 2007 or so. And there just, there came a point uh, where to truncate it a little bit, I said, you know what, I'm tired of using my race as a crutch uh, 
for all of my problems in life. And I had the dual decision or the, the dual decision where I said, you know what, I'm a human being before I'm my demographic. And if somebody else can't see that, they could be a Klansman or they can be some crazy white progressive. You know, if they can only see me as a black person before they see me as a human being, then that's their fucking problem. That's nothing to do with me. And once I sort of had that mindset, because then I also realized at the end of that, uh, at the end of that summer, I said, you know what, man, I'm sitting here in this dorm room raging about like how nobody understands me and the world hates me because I'm black. You know, they, they everybody hates niggas or whatever. And, you know, meanwhile, outside, there's a, you know, a huge group of people, you know, around the bonfire playing guitar. My, one of my jokes is that, you know, when you have a, a large gathering of white people, it's either like a bonfire and some guitars are guaranteed. <laughs> like they, they're going to happen at some point. But, you know, they're all out singing and having a good time. And I'm, I'm just fuming in this dorm room and I'm just like, you know, the world hates me and just feeling sorry for myself. But then I said, wait a minute, they're out there living their lives, being young and beautiful and happy. I'm sitting in here in this room bitching about it. I'm the one who's putting walls up. And when I went outside to to, to greet the, the crowd, they were so happy I showed up. They were like, hey, Jeff, what's going on? And it was a great it was a great night. So then I learned I was like, OK, wait a minute. You know, I've been spending my entire life putting up these these barriers and, and operating on these assumptions um, just about the world and about white people or whatever. And that's what's been closing me off. And so then later on, like as an example, I was playing Caliban, who was like one of the most you know well-known characters in the Shakespeare uh, canon. And he's very explicitly a slave. He's treated terribly throughout the show. And in this particular production, this was in Washington, D.C., um, and it was a very successful production, but, you know, part of my costume, I mean, I'm literally wearing chains and, you know, and, and I, right away I knew that people would have a, an issue with it. I mean, I was the one who was in the rehearsal room who was like fighting, like, no, you know, throw me around. Like, let's, let's go there. Let's, let's be as abusive and as intense as possible. But, you know, everybody's kind of afraid to, to go there. And to me, if I would still been in a place where I felt like I had an obligation to, you know, to make to make, uh, you know, certain uh, certain people in the audience uh, uh, happy and comfortable. And, you know what I mean? You know, as a black man playing a slave, then I wouldn't have been able to play the part, you know, and, and I just said, you know, people will bring their baggage to it. My job is to look at this text and try to figure out who this individual is. And kudos to uh, my, my scene partners as well, because. You know, there's scenes where, where Caliban is literally kissing, kissing these people's boots, you know, and we had you know, there was a high school matinee we had one day where, you know, we had a bunch of black kids, you know, it was like from a, a D.C. public school that were just like, ew. So, of course, my response was I just I kissed the shit out of that dude's foot, man. <laughs> you know, he just kind of flouting and throwing it, throwing it in their faces, you know, and there were people who complained like, you know, I can't believe that you know, they have this black man on stage playing a slave and then they have this other black man who's playing who's playing the prince of Naples, by the way, who's like, you know, he's lifting logs. And I'm like, the nigga's royalty. What the fuck else do you want? You know? Yeah. And, you know, and uh, it's it, once you break out of that mindset of like, I, I have a duty to uphold some kind of activism or whatever, then, you know, it, it just, it broadens your perspective and you're able as an artist to say, look, I have this these available choices to me. And when you're not worried about how you're going to be perceived, you're just more free to work. And I think that's a lot of what's going on in much of the industry is people are so concerned about being offensive or about triggering people. And, and it goes, again, my training, which was elite training, 
you know, we're told to be courageous, to be bold, to go to go to the uncomfortable place, emotional places. Um, you know, that that's what separates us from normal people. You know, actors, we're, we're kind of nuts, you know, <laughs> but but by design, because we we go to places emotionally um, that no that that no one else wants to go to. Uh, uh, the great playwright, uh, Tony Kushner, who did Angels in America, um, he came to speak to us once um, at uh, NYU. And he was like, you know, basically, when audiences come to see you, they're, they're paying to watch you suffer. And and it's true. You know, I mean, even comedy is tragedy plus timing. So mm-hmm. the, you you need to be willing to to be offended and to be offensive. You need to be willing to to break a few eggs and to you know, just to make something that's meaningful and to make something that's ever let, that, that, that will endure. And I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier, this idea that I don't know if much that, that's produced or written today will be done 10 years, 20 years from now. I mean, will, will we still be watching, uh, I don't know, I don't want to name out any movies, but the, the, the way that we watch, the, you know, I could watch Airplane and still laugh at that. I can watch the Philadelphia story with, with Katie Hepburn and Jimmy Stewart and love that. I mean, Clint Eastwood is one of my favorites. I mean, you know, I could go back yeah. and watch all these old movies and still enjoy them. But will it, how many movies that are produced today, how many plays written today, you know, will have that same kind of endurance? And I think part of the reason is that there's a, a, a severe lack of courage um, driven yeah. by this idea where we're going to be as harmless and as safe as 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 possible because we don't want to offend people. And it's just, you know, that that's fine. It's, also, it's it creates you know, a self-censorship. Right. It creates yeah. a sort of self-censorship yeah. that you can't. That's exactly what it is. To, yeah. to do what you're describing, to have the uh, emotional depth and to portray the drama, you need to have kind of unfettered access to your own emotions and intellect. You need to, like, allow yourself to go to places that are uncomfortable for you as well, because you, you need to get to these places that are um, really difficult to inhabit and. I, and you might decide that's not what you want to do and that's not what the role calls for and you change, but you, you need to have that unfettered access to the range of your your feelings and and thoughts. And I think self-censorship, once you start to turn that self-censorship engine on, uh, it it's it's like a filter that everything passes through and I, it, it severely inhibits uh, spontaneity, uh, any kind of creativity. Um, and even if you're not trying to do anything even if you're not consciously censoring, your every movement, everything's muted. All of your behavior is muted. Your drama is muted. Your your ability to connect with the audience is muted. Everything's muted because you're not bringing your full self to the role. You're bringing a censored version of yourself. And people have, I think people are, are very highly attuned to, to telling whether someone is really invested in it or not not really there all all of them and, and carter you know what and, and sorry carrie but like and, and here's the thing because this idea and I, I mentioned earlier that i feel like a lot of people in our industry they, they denigrate the audience they 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 think that that people are stupid and it's like okay maybe someone doesn't have a phd or a college degree but the soul knows you know what i mean to, to quote yeah. one of my teachers the people people can tell People can sense it intuitively. I'm convinced of this. Yep. When someone is not truly alive and they're not truly engaged in what they're doing, audiences can feel that. And I and I and I think that's why you see these the you know these movies that are bombing now. You know these franchises that are sort of you know, be it Star Wars or Star Trek or Doctor Who that are that are alienating audiences. People they just, they're just not getting any value from it. And it's not that they're bigoted or that they're 
that they're un, that they're uncouth, you know, and and uneducated. It's just that they're what they are feeling and what they're experiencing is not landing for them. And because the people that are that they are watching, you know, and and the scripts that they're listening to or or absorbing, they just they have these filters over. I think this, that's exactly what it is, man. They're just. They, they're not feeling it, and, and it's because it's so sanitized. That's the word I was looking yes. for. It's so sanitized for, for, for our sanitized. safety, for our own good. Right. You know, but sorry, Carol, you were saying something. I cut you off. Oh, no. Well, as you were saying that, I was thinking, yeah, you know, I have to take a bathroom break, and it's probably noticeable on my face that I'm not as engaged. <laughs> <laughs> we can cut this part out. I no, really we can't to cut to this part out. We're going to leave this in. Yes. Go pee. Okay, Go but... Pee. but Quick, I'm going to just say one thing, is that you were making me think about, um, it, it is self-censorship, yes, because you're always, it's, it's in, you're, you're operating in this false place where you're worried more about how you're being perceived than about actually speaking truth or doing your art or doing a good job or being amused or letting, letting um, if you're a Christian, maybe thinking about like letting yourself be a conduit for something greater you you're if you're if if you're too focused on how people perceive you you're you're just you're not operating authentically and so it is a form of self-censorship but the other thing that you said that um also resonated with me was how your preconceived notions or fears of how people might uh be bigoted towards you because of race be they progressives or clansmen made me think of what it was like for me when i was in the social justice cult and i was in a similar way, I used to go into rooms in, you know, in the entertainment industry, I'd go into rooms with network executives or agents um, and people who I would go in with this preconceived notion that they have a certain uh, amount of it's like an old boys club. And, and it is to a large extent. But I went in thinking every room was going to be like that and every executive was going to be like that. And I always it's almost like I went in with the self-limitation of I'm going to be judged as a woman and not deserving of being here and that there's something wrong with me. And that made that that made those that made that come true in a in a weird way, because I went in with that perception. And, it, and on the other side of that, once I've gotten out of that place of looking at myself as some you know, oppressed person who's always going to be treated differently because I'm a woman, it means that I can just operate without that burden of, of prejudging how people are going to treat me. And then it, it, that influences the situation when I did that. And so now, yeah, do you, am I still going to encounter potentially sexist people, whether they're male feminists or, um, <laughs> or chauvinists? Yes, I will. But I don't I don't go into every situation expecting that. I just go in as me. I don't go in as a woman. And and if they have that, if they're going to view me as a woman primarily, be they a male feminist or a uh, chauvinist, that's that's fine. That's on them. That's the way they're doing it. But it's just so freeing. It's so freeing. And I yes, like you said, your creativity improved, your craft improved. Um, I think my self-respect improved. I became more confident, all those things you're talking about, more courageous. I was always, I was yeah. on mute before. Well, once I, once I, yeah. once, and you know, I know you got to pee, but uh, once, <laughs> once I became, once I became self-possessed and self-actualized, that's when I, you know, and I had an ex-girlfriend as well. She was, she's actually Asian American. And she was like, you know, well, Clifton, the world is not out to get you. And initially I was like, what the fuck? Can you see what's happening every day? <laughs> you know, but 
you know, but she was also, I mean, she, she was wonderfully extroverted in a way that, that I tend not to be. And once I began to sort of internalize that idea, you know, now I'm at the point where like, I don't give a, I don't give a fuck what any white person thinks about me. I don't spend my days worrying about what white people think about me or black people for that matter. You know, and ironically, that that is what has now alienated me from a lot of black people that I that I encounter, a lot of white people that I encounter. They they cannot fathom that I it's and it's really a it's a funny sort of white supremacist kind of point of view because they can't fathom that I'm that I'm not hiding under my desk on a daily basis, worried about how the white man is gonna keep me down. I'm like, I don't give a fuck about y'all. You know what I mean? Y'all got your own problems. <laughs> you know what yes. I mean? But it's but it's it's genuine, it's genuine self-empowerment. It's not this yeah. this idea where I'm like you know, it's not this this fake empowerment that comes from resentment and, and just self-righteous anger, because, you know, there, there's that saying that that being angry at someone is like taking poison and hoping they die. You know, you're only you're only hurting yourself. You're not coming at the world in, in, a, in an open and confident way. You're just you're you're horrified. So then one quick story and then and then yeah, I'll, I'll release then I'll you. Take Okay. <laughs> but uh, so I was I was working on the show and it, it was just, uh, it was a Tempest actually where, where I was playing Caliban and we had this one actress who, you know, was playing um, uh, Ariel who was uh, one of the spirits of the island um, uh, in in that play and she is also or, or Ariel is a character you know it's a spirit but and genderless but um, but that character is also referred to as a slave uh, funny enough but no one ever talked about that but. Um, there was one point where we're, we're going into a uh, rehearsal and, you know, we're kind of chilling in the green room beforehand. And the actress playing Ariel says, well, I'm going into this room now. She talks to, the, to one of the, the other few women in the cast. Uh, you know, Shakespeare didn't write a whole lot of, lot of uh, girls, unfortunately. But, you know, she goes to the other woman and she, and she just goes, yeah, I'm looking forward to going in here. And it's just a, a room full of men. And I'm thinking to myself, there is no one in there, in that rehearsal room, who's thinking to themselves, well, how are we going to keep this bitch down? You know? <laughs> you, I mean, we're doing theater, for God's sakes. We're doing theater. You know what I mean? There's no one in there who's not on your side. And incidentally, when, when we remounted that production, she didn't, she didn't get hired back. You know, her, her, she, was, she was such a, a toxic uh, person. And... You know, and I, I just saw that 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 mindset of yeah, of like everyone's coming out. They're going to be out to get me. And, and you could see her resistance whenever she was like directed in a different way. You know, cause she was making some just weird fucking choices. I appreciate it. You know, she was a Yale drama school uh, uh, trained actor. So she, you know, so, you know, she had, I had my issues with that school, but, you know, whatever. But she was she she knows what she's doing, but she was just making some weird kind of choices. And it, you could see her just be like, no, you know, just get really defensive. And it's like, it's like, dude, we're not trying to keep you down or oppress you. We're just trying to tell a, a coherent story that makes sense and is justifiable by the words on the page right now. You know what I mean? But, you know, so but her replacement was wonderful. She was way fun to be around and, and actually and actually empowered, you know, as as a woman and, and confident and. You know, she was just a, a joy to be around that made everything better. So, yeah, it's like it's this poisonous worldview that just it, it really has an effect. And I told you when you posted those pictures of you uh, side by side, you know, there's a picture oh, yeah. of you where you're kind of dead, dead behind the eyes because yeah. you were so you were so you were totally in that um, in the cult, I guess you called it versus you now, which is just so effervescent and full of life. It's, it's such a stark difference. And I feel it like was. I kind of went through a similar thing. You know what I mean? You just 
once you slough off all of that, all of that, I guess, spiritual gunk and turmoil, you know, you, you just become a more powerful and radiant person. And I really, I really, I want that for everyone else, but they're so mired in this, um, in this crusade, this quasi-religious crusade uh, uh, for for a quote-unquote social justice, um, that um, you know, it's just kind of sad to watch sometimes to see how people are kind of destroying themselves and being eaten up. It doesn't preclude, um, you know, fighting for fighting for the 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 underclasses or fighting for people that that need it. And that's why that's why I value people of the left. There is something about this idea that you know we're going to take your downtrodden and then you're poor and you know, we might have faulty ideas about how to help those people, but the compassion is 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 genuine and sincere. So, you know, they have their hearts in the right places, but there's yeah. a lot of, they're coded in some kind of... The, the... <laughs> perfect, perfect timing. A, I'll be right back. All right, take care. <laughs> Be safe. <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you if, um, just while she's while she's gone, have do you do you think there's been like a a really when do you think you think there was a noticeable change in the acting community? Because I, I I look at the the acting community generally as an outsider, and I kind of feel like, well, they've always been slightly left of Mao. So when did things like? <laughs> When did they become also really angry about everyone else who disagrees with them in a way that they can't even work with them and need to destroy them? And is that a recent development? I I don't think so, honestly. I um, there's actually an, an interview, an old interview with John Wayne, where he says explicitly, uh, he's like, the industry is being taken over by communists, you know, and they're they're in there. These liberals are infiltrating the da, da, da. and. You know, and and in a way, he was right because you you see this era of of guys like John Wayne or um, Steve McQueen, you know, who had this sort of, I guess, this old school kind of masculinity, or like a Cary Grant, um, and I feel like guys like Denzel Washington and like that that generation, Tom Cruise, Clint Eastwood, maybe are the last of of the era, but it's it's. It's an old kind of. It's an old. It's an old thing. There, there. I think. I think there has off. There's always been some kind of animosity against you know conservatives or Republicans in in the industry. And again, I think part of it is a function of the kind of people that are drawn to to the arts and to and furthermore to careers in the arts. But you know, I, I think whatever shifts have taken place within the industry are are also a reflection of you know where we've shifted as a culture as a whole and. You know, there's what's the saying that that politics is downwind of culture. I, I think it's I think it's more I think it's more of a symbiotic kind of kind of thing. You know, it's or 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 cyclical. And you know, the more the more extreme the culture gets, the more extreme the politics get, and then it, and then it, you know it comes right back it comes right back onto us. And I think. I will say that when I got out of of grad school, which was in two thousand and nine, it, it was a little bit it was a little bit different. It didn't seem to be as 
it didn't seem to be as bad, but that's a, that could also be a function of, you know, I hadn't had my own awakening yet. I was still like, I was still in that world. Um, you know, but so to, to answer your question, uh, hi, Carrie, hope you're, I hope you're nice hi. and relieved now. Yeah. all fresh faced, hands washed, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, but, uh, so yeah, Carter asked me like when he, when the shift in the acting world kind of came and I was saying, you know, well, there's, there's an interview, uh, uh, from with John Wayne back from oh gosh probably the 60s maybe I, I don't know exactly when it was but you know he, he says explicitly you know communists and you know the liberals are taking over the industry and so this was decades and decades this is the you know the middle of the 20th century whenever it was and so people like that you know one of my favorite movies of all time is It's a Wonderful Life and Frank Capra who made the film um was a conservative republican and I'm thinking to myself okay um how how many other potential it's a wonderful life are we shutting out of the industry now because we're so uh, opposed to these differing viewpoints and and I've often found myself in rehearsal rooms you know offering alternative viewpoints that obviously no one has ever considered and it's like you know you need people like that to help give whatever work you're doing more texture and they're shutting out they're <laughs> shutting out everything so I don't know I don't know if and when it changed, I think it's just been a gradual kind of shift yeah. as things march uh, further and further leftward. Yeah. Post-Trump, is it going to get, uh, are they going to double down or are they going to relax a little bit on their uh, their insanity? You know, me and um, I have a group chat with um, some of my some of my actor friends um, who are also, um, you know, on, on my side of the fence, you know. And we're... We're curious to see where it, where it goes. I mean, you know, they're white, so it's like, well, y'all ain't gonna be working as much anymore, um, you know. But then with with someone like me, uh, I don't know if it's a post-Trump thing uh, or or what. But the the sweep and scope of you know the the social justice movement or Black Lives Matter and just and how it's just saturated the industry so quickly. I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm about to uh, witness a, a lot of projects where it's like, you know, we, we thought you'd be great for this. And I'm thinking to myself, well, did you really think that I'd be great for this? Or are you just trying to assuage your own white guilt? And, you know, I, I I joke that some one of the reasons I'm not more prominent than I am now, I turn down so many auditions because, you know, you read these scripts and it's just like it's the same kind of narratives you see uh, all over the place. And I'm just I'm just not interested in that. And my fear is that as a reaction to um, a reaction to the caricature of what of what Donald Trump is, there's. You know, there's and, and the prioritization of 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 activism over art. My fear is that it'll just keep going further and further and further and in, in, in this uh, progressive direction. And, you know, I'm, I'm seeing casting breakdowns come out, come out now where, um, you know, the, so for, for people who are who don't know a, a casting breakdown, when a project is being is being produced, uh, the casting, the producer, the production hires a, uh, a casting agent um, who will. Uh, generate what's called a breakdown, which is a description of all the characters and the roles that need to be filled uh, before they hold auditions. Uh, and you see these characters 
these character descriptions now, and it's like, you know, uh, uh, masculine presenting uh, male, uh, um, non-binary, this, that, and the third. And it's like, okay, well, this is a man. You're looking for a man, you're looking for a woman, but you know, you're, you're putting this there and you know, the, 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 the direct, the casting people themselves have their pronouns in their, in their email signatures and that sort of a thing. And again, you know, it's, it's fine. You know, if, if, you know, I have, I have no personal animus towards that, but it, it just seems like there is, I don't see much stopping the, the leftward, the leftward creep. And I feel like, you know, in a way, Trump, uh, was sort of adding fuel to the fire. I think, yeah. you know, it, it, it really, it's, it's, the reaction to him has been unbelievable to me, you know, and, yeah. and, and it, it was hilarious. Oh, sorry. Well, okay. no, and I think it remains to be seen whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, is it good to speed up the process so more people see it for what it is? Maybe Carter's giving a thumbs up or Carter so. He likes that. I don't know. I I had uh, I voted for Trump this time around, which would have seemed absurd, like just absolutely impossible to me in 2016 that that, that I would do that. And part, I, I did. I was troubled about it. I did think about it for a long time. And after I decided to, I still thought I still questioned it because I was wondering if he gets elected again, is it going to make social justice even worse like but but i think but i but maybe that's good for it to be sped up i don't know i just had to pick the person i thought was the best and not worry about like you said not worry about the audience not worry about what's going to happen after and make the best choice i can and not worry about what the actions and reactions will be uh so much but but yeah he definitely he's 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 act as he's acted as an accelerating agent <laughs> to the whole uh process you know, if it's, you think like a, it's it's insane, you know. And I remember, <clears throat> so I think it was the night of the election. I was actually doing a show in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, and uh, which, incidentally, the first person who ever told me that he was voting for Trump was a black man. Mm-hmm. He was a barber out in Connecticut, out in Hartford, uh, uh, mall, you know, small business owner. He had his he had his other black friend sitting right there in the barber shop with him, and he was like, "Yo, man." You know, we I'm voting for Trump, bro. He's gonna make it so we can get some money. And then I went to the, the YMCA and I see these white guys who were talking about they're gonna vote for Trump. They're talking about jobs and you know and the economy. And so, you know, th- this this caricature of his supporters um, you know, b- being these knuckle-dragging, uneducated, uh, largely white rubes. Um, I mean, I, I sort of knew from jump, I was like, you know, something else is going on here. Mm. And clearly, um, you know, and I, because I stopped watching the news, like pretty deliberately back in 2014, especially after, uh, after Gamergate, you know, immediately I was a little bit skeptical of what was going on. You know, I mean, the man obviously does himself no favors, um, as far as his comportment or whatever, but, you know, I watched a, a rally that he, that he did a rally, a rally he did. And, you know, he's speaking to this packed um, auditorium and he spoke for half an hour, didn't really say much of anything, but, you know, but, but what struck me about it is that he was, he was projecting humor, warmth, even vulnerability. I mean, he was talking about, you know, how scary it is to run for president, you know, to this audience, you know, he's supposed to be this, like this big swinging dick out, you know, big swinging yeah. orange dick alpha male, but he's like, yeah, you know, it's 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 scary to run for, and he's telling jokes and everything. I'm like, okay, 
this is not the the bombastic you know horror show that that I'm being showed on on uh, on the news and and it was such a, a crazy kind of mindfuck again to be in these rehearsal rooms and to have people. Uh, reacting so violently and just saying to themselves, like, you know, if you voted for Trump, you can unfollow me now. And, and, you know, and then after he was elected, it was kind of funny because, you know, I'm, I'm, we had just opened our show and, you know, I'm walking around this room, this very nice house um, with the rest of my cast and uh, staff of the theater, you know, we're having a little shindig and all these adults were just crestfallen and they're, they're, they're moping and they're just sad. And I'm the, the only asshole in there who's just like, oh, well, you know, I think we'll be all right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be as bad. You know, I, I think we'll be okay. You know what I mean? Like, I and was they're just, like, are you an alien? <laughs> well, they're just like, I just, I, I don't, I don't know. I just, uh, I mean, I've sat in, I've sat in rooms with actors, you know, literally shaking with rage when they talk about, uh, you know, Donald Trump. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I mean, yeah, he, he's cringy, you know what I mean? But yeah, I, 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 I can't. Here's here's I've never shared this publicly. So here's okay. my <laughs> cancellation coming. Because my, my my feelings about about Trump are genuinely and decidedly mixed. Um, but in an inverse way to the to the how my feelings about Barack Obama were mixed. So with Barack Obama, who I voted for in 2008, you know, and I, and when he won, I called my grandmother. We were both crying, you know what I mean? It was such a huge, huge deal. And, but then I was, after that, I was like, you know, I mean, I mean, I was, I was a tepid supporter from the beginning, but I was like, okay, this dude is running on a, a platform of, uh, of, you know, ending these Middle Eastern <laughs> wars or whatever and closing Gitmo. He did none of that. He's talking about protecting whistleblowers. He did none of that. You know, I, I just found him to be sort of duplicitous and kind of fork-tongued and, you know, but at the same time, it's like, you know, in the, in, in the wake of the Bush presidency, which, you know, yeah. <laughs> didn't go that well, um, you know, you have this kind of smart, cool, suave, you know, black dude. He's got this beautiful family up in the White House and, you know, he's this brilliant uh, speaker. And even to this day, when I see Barack Obama on, on camera, you know, I... I they have that phrase where it's like, you know, you, you love to hate so-and-so. Like, I I actually hate to hate him because I, I look at him and I, I see, like, someone who's so charismatic and he's just so kind of cool and, you know, and, and funny. You know, he has some some great, like, little lines and everything. And as a, as a Black person, in a way, I hate certain sentences like that. But, you know, there is a certain sense of, of pride but at the same time from a policy perspective and from what he actually – I'm just like – no, bro. Like you were tepid at best, and very, and you alienated so many people. You know, by the end of your presidency, what you had lost the House and the and the Senate, and you know what there were, as far as uh, governorships, I think there were thirty three versus seventeen for Democrats. So, like people were like thirty three for, for Republicans, seventeen for Democrats. So it's like you know people were not feeling you by the end of your by the end of your your term. So something was going on. But then with Trump, it's like the optics are terrible. You know, what I mean, this is, yes. <laughs> you know, like the, the way he speaks and like coming and down I, the escalator. Funny. Yeah. I mean, like, it's just he's cringy, dude. Like you look at it like he, he could be funny. He could, you know, he, he says stuff sometimes that needs to be said. But at the same time, you're just like, 
I would watch his speeches, you know, and I would, I, you know, C-SPAN is my, is my jam. I would go straight to C-SPAN. I don't watch any of this other bullshit. I go straight to the source to see, you know, and, and evaluate for myself what, what he says and does. But, you know, so while the optics of Obama, I was like, this is great. Um, with Trump, it's like, oh, but from a policy perspective, I'm like, yeah, you know, it doesn't seem to be, uh, I mean, even Glenn Greenwald, uh, Glenn Greenwald's been making this point, like, you know, what what wars has this dude started? You know what I mean? And he's the first president since Carter who hasn't gotten us involved in a foreign conflict, in another foreign conflict, assuming he doesn't do yeah, anything to you know, Syria between now and when he leaves. Right, right. You know, and and you know, I'm seeing articles come out now. I think there was a piece, might have been the New York Times, um, that uh, they said that uh, someone was like, you know, talking about how Trump is right about China. You know what I mean? And, and it's when you have a point of view or a worldview, which just says, I think Eric Weinstein said this. I'm just going to put a minus sign in front of everything he says. <laughs> you know, you're you're just you're you're not really engaging honestly with what's going on. So my mixed feelings about Trump come from like, the optics are weird. Like everyone was like, oh, Melania, you know, she gave this speech. I'm like, dude, she sounds weird to me, man. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's just, there's something about it. There's, there's a sleaze about it that I, I, I don't like, but at the same time, it's great to have a president who's going to be like, yeah, we'll never be a socialist country and who understands what that, you know, what that, uh, what that means. Mm -hmm. And, who understands, you know, if you're a successful business person, I know, I know people try to say that he, um, you know, is a, a failure, he had bankruptcies. It's like, well, there's a different, he's, he's rich. I mean, you, you don't, you don't have people paying to put your name on their shit, you know, if yeah. you're a failure in life, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, and every rap song about Don, that mentioned Donald Trump before 2015 was about, you know, how Positive. awesome he is. And why, and, and you know, and we talk about his appeal to like black uh, men specifically in this in this past election. It's like, okay, what, you know, <laughs> they were like, yo, Donald Trump is a shit before 2015. Why? Because he's rich and he fucks hot pussy. Excuse my language. Now, yeah. what do all these rappers talk about all the time? Who are successful? The same kind of stuff. So, you know, th there's this, there's this, when you have that kind of, uh. I guess success in life or, or whatever it is. I mean, there's just, it seems to me that he understands why economics is important. And, you know, it's, it, I think the right makes the mistake of being a little bit too mercenary. They say like, oh, you know, well, the economy is this, and you know, there's more to life than a booming economy. And, and we know this, but at the same time, it's not a small thing if you are, <laughs> if you are making progress in terms of building a strong economy. I mean, you know, when I listen to or talk to, uh, you know, conservatives or Trump, uh, Trump voters, it's, it's kind of strange because on the left, they're, they're melting down, but on the right, they're like, I'm having the time of my life. I'm laughing at y'all. I'm working. There's job. I mean, I've seen videos of black men crying, you know, just weeping because they have jobs now. They're like, you know, th this factory is open in our, in our neighborhood and I was able to get off of food stamps and I was able to, you know, start my own business because, was, you know, these these regulations weren't in the way. And and, you know, Obamacare killed, you know, I had to I had to lay off my staff because of this and that, you know, so there's. You you, you can't ignore the, the positives about it. So it's like, OK, yes, from a, from a policy perspective, 
I can, I can, I can get on board with that. It's just, you know, the optics are like, uh, but it's, yeah. it's kind of funny, you know, it's just, it's, it's the complete inverse of how I felt about Barack Obama, where the, the optics were kind of perfect, but it's just that as a leader and, and, and from a policy perspective, um, you know, and again, he wasn't all bad either. It's, you can't, I just, I was never on board with the, like with the Obama mania and the euphoria, just as I was never on board with this the, extreme reaction to, to Donald Trump. It just, yeah. uh, it's, it's, I, I, I compared the Democrats to uh, like watching the Democrats since Trump got elected. It's like watching a, uh, a, a body, a, a corpse writhing in convulsions after getting shot in the head. It's just, it's so ugly. It's, it's, it's writhing around. It's uncontrolled. It's just really, it's really unpleasant to watch, but you know, that, that's what, that's what a death rattle is. Yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> you mentioned death rattle because Carter sometimes has said he thinks that social justice Marxism might be in its death throes. He doesn't always think this, but that might be why it's so predominant now. And, and it is in its death throes. So it is becoming so culturally dominant and trying to, you know, take things further and further. Um, I don't know. I don't know what I think about well, that. Well, I mean, I definitely think they're at their last stage where they feel like this is the, this is the sprint. They're, they're, they're in the home stretch, right? So it's like, we, we either get a revolution soon, like masks come off, we're Marxists, we're going for it. And like, you know, masks we, revolution or bust. Figuratively, not literally. Yes, though. Yeah, these these masks, not these masks. <laughs> these, these masks stay on. These masks come off. Yeah. The, 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 yeah, the mask of like, we're caring and we just care and we just want a little bit of, we want to be a little bit more like Denmark or whatever. Like that mask has come off. And... <laughs> The, the hey we're crazy Marxists who want who hate Western civilization and think the founding of America is a, a blight on the history of humanity and we want to undo it. That's become clear, uh, but I think it's because they think that this is this is the end. This is the sprint. They they can get to their goal line or they're going to die either way. Right now, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think there might be something to that. I think like it, it's 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 funny to me watching. Um, people, you know, literally dancing in the streets after, uh, after Biden was <laughs> elected. And, um, he, I'm thinking to myself, this seems to me to be a, a Pyrrhic victory at best, because I mean, you, the Republicans held the Senate, the Democrats are bleeding seats in the house. You know, you've had, this has been a year of historic, uh, uh gun purchases. Uh, you can't find ammo anywhere. Um, you, you know, so, I mean, if you, if you're going to try to do some Second Amendment shit or gun control. I don't know if that's going to work this time. Um, you know, we'll see what the mid what the midterms look like in 2022. But you know, when I when I I think there's a lot of people who are afraid to say what I mean. We talk about the silent majority or whatever, but you know, I, I I think there is something carded to to the idea that the more they show themselves, the more people say this is not what I signed up for, and. You know, when you hear these stories about, you know, first time gun buyers, you know, who are on the left side of the spectrum and, you know, trying to figure it all out and, and going to the range and everything. And, you know, which I completely supported. My grandmother slept with a revolver and two boxes of bullets in the cupboard behind her pillow. You know, <laughs> so I'm like, you know, protect yourself. You're a little old lady, you know, um, it's. When I when you think about how this year, I mean, the Democrats I mean, I, I love what's happening with the with the uh, school closures right now in, in response to COVID, where more people now are fine are finally having the courage to step up and say this is not right. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, after a year of these Democrat uh, mayors and governors sort of standing by and letting their cities be destroyed. Now, you can say that it's mostly peaceful and, you know, and, but there's still there were still over, what, 600 or something riots um, yeah. or, or events declared as riots during that time. And people are seeing that people are watching it. Um, when I have one on one conversations with people, um, you know, when I leave New York City, you know, and I'm in a place like Atlanta and I just have conversations with normal people. You know, or my, my younger brother, you know, who, who I'm staying with right now. I mean, he's a he's a musician. He's an artist. And I'm talking to his friends. They're in their mid to late 20s. And they recognize, I mean, the the failures of the Democratic Party are very, very clear to them. Now, a lot of these people were like Bernie supporters, but they don't they don't fuck with the Democrats. Yeah. You know, like they, they probably won't vote Republican anytime soon, you know, because that's just again, it's ingrained, you know, that's mm -hmm. in a lot of black culture. But I, I don't Continually, I am I'm confronted with it's anecdotal, but, you know, some and other evidence, too, that just people really aren't as enamored with the Democrats as they as they used to be. And people and people are watching and they're saying, you know, wait a minute. You know, I mean, even even the response to COVID in and of itself, and this sort of harkens back to, uh, you know, when I was in Hartford and one of the things that really disgusted me about about how the Democrats were conduct were were. Um, were conducting themselves, this obvious contempt and disdain for working people, uh, mm -hmm. for, for just regular folks. I mean, it's so yeah. obvious and it's so odious to me. Yeah. And it just it fills me with rage. And so then to see the response to to COVID, where people were saying, like, you know, oh, what you want you, you want you don't want you don't want a job, you don't talk about your freedoms, you just want to get a haircut, you you, yeah. you want to kill grandma, whatever. I'm like, these people are saying that we don't want our livelihoods destroyed because we don't want to be poor and we have, you know, children to feed and we have, uh, you know, you know, we want to be able to afford, you know, maybe we're taking care of our, of our elderly uh, 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 parents and, you know, we need to have resources to be able to do that. And to see people sneer and say, you know, call them racist and to say that they're anti-science and everything yeah. and, you know, and, and just and to instill these lockdown measures, which, I mean, Anyone who, with two brain cells to rub together, could have predicted that these these issues, these policies, will have a negative effect, most disproportionately on the poor, you know, people of color that you claim to want to help. You know, yeah. it's 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 so disgusting to me, and I think a lot of people are seeing that, and a lot of people are understanding that, and they're and they're saying to themselves, like, I mean, there was a great piece in Political the other day um, uh, by a. A um, local leader in, in Wisconsin who said, you know, the, the Democrats, they their message to rural areas, you know, they're they're trying to figure out why the rural areas went for Trump so hard. And it's like, well, one of the reasons that and again, I saw this when I when I when I watched his rally is that he's not talking down to them. No. He's talking to them. He's not talking at them. And whether or not, you know, you you believe in him and, and you and you think he was effective or whatever. He was one of the you know, he was one of the only people that I saw who was just like, you know, like like when he gets on stage and talks about the, the Democrats, quote unquote, ridiculous bullshit. Do you know how many of my brother's friends have said the same fucking thing? You know, so so there is a there is a disconnect between the Democrats and the people that they hope to champion because they condescend to them so much. And it's so obvious. And I think that people are more Wait, people yeah. are seeing that. And and even, you know, they can cheer all they want about Biden's election. But, uh, you know, I think that um, I, I feel like maybe there's just a, a shift in the consciousness and people 
maybe won't be as uh, as gung ho about supporting the uh, Democrats uh, going forward. I mean, I, I just feel like the, the the party needs to crash and burn. We need we need a strong, rational uh, left to 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 counterbalance the the political ascendancy of of the right. And it's just, yeah, I think people. I, my hope is that people are beginning to wake up and see that maybe this current iteration of of the Democrats aren't. Uh, aren't aren't where it's at, you know? And I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I would hope so, but I you know, hope but you're I'm, right, or I hope at least culturally, because I don't really care. I guess I'm getting a place where I don't really care much about the political parties anymore. Like, I don't think Biden won this election, so uh, I do think he's probably going to serve as president. But I, I I don't even trust the election process anymore. I I thought it was stolen in 2000. I thought they gave it to W. Um, and I think this was an even greater, more obvious steal. That's just my gut. I'm not saying I'm an expert on any of the fraud allegations. I'm not. In fact, I don't even want to read through them. I, I know that's make, at some point I'll read through them, but I just it's enough for me just to say my gut is that statistically it doesn't seem to make sense that we, you know, Trump picked up uh, he picked up a lot of support in New York City, in the Bronx. He picked up a lot of support in the Bronx. He, you know who's in the Bronx? There's a bunch of bunch of Latinos in the Bronx. That's what's yeah. going on. That's been one of the big stories that came out of it. I mean, come on. He picked up there. He picked up support among every demographic other than white men. He picked up support among black men, black women, Latinos, LGBT groups. Like he he did all of that, and he got a lot more. If you believe the results, he got a a lot more votes than he did last time, and he got more votes than Obama did during his landslide victory. And then we're supposed to believe Joe Biden got even more than that, more than Obama's landslide victory and more than Trump. I just don't buy that. I just don't. And the way the way the the timing of the way the results changed in the swing states and stuff, I just whatever. I don't buy it. But I guess my point being, it doesn't bother me so much, though, who's in office, whether it's Trump or Biden, because I think the cultural war is still going to rage on. It's just going to be a little different depending on who's there. But uh, I think a lot of these companies, like you're saying, unfortunately, I think the entertainment companies are going to bite the bullet at some point, or they're going to take huge uh, dives and they're going to have to figure out if they're changing their approach or not. And maybe, maybe through the destruction, there'll be opportunity for new things to be born, like these independent comic book creators. Maybe we'll see something like that when it comes to acting um, and other types of entertainment, like movies and, and TV shows. I don't know. Uh, it's an interesting time to be alive though, I think. And, um, Okay, I'm kind of rambling now. I did want to, we've been going for about two and a half hours, so I think we should wrap it up because Oof. my brain, it gets tired after two hours. <laughs> so um, I did, along those lines of maybe new things being born from where we're at now culturally, what are you working on now? What are you excited about in the future? Are there things you're excited about? What have been some of the rewards maybe of you um, starting to speak up a bit about your opinions and where can people find more of what you're doing? Um, well, one of the rewards um, has definitely been connecting with just like-minded people who I, I just, who I think are interesting and who are brilliant and, you know, they, they pique my curiosity and, and, you know, I, I guess I've been someone just my whole life. I've been kind of contrarian and sort of on the outside of many things. So I, I you know, I, <clears throat> I, I, 
Carter can't relate to that at all. I'm go, go ahead. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, how about I, you know, so I, so I, I feel like I, I, I value uh, people who are able to, who are willing to speak up and just be like, this is bullshit. Um, as far as what I'm working on now, I mean, it, it's really, it's really tough to say. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been urged multiple times to start a podcast. So I mean, I've scribbled down some ideas um, uh, for such. Uh, so look for that in the future. I, I do want to grow my YouTube channel, although I feel like YouTube, oh, I want to have a performance-based YouTube channel um, uh, supported by, you know, patrons uh, who, who are kind enough to, to donate to me. Um, but I'm also on this journey right now. Um, the the um, conservative commentator, uh, Victor Davis Hanson, I don't know if you're familiar with him, um, you know, I just got canceled again by mentioning his, his name. Um, he has this really interesting lecture on online. It's about half an hour. He talks about the importance of studying the classics. And it really inspired me to uh, to embark on this this journey of, of, of self-education. I mean, Jordan Peterson kind of inspired me as well to go down this intellectual um, uh, journey. So as far as what I'm working on right now, it's just, it's, it's appraising myself of all the things that I just, I didn't learn just by dint of growing up in, in largely in America and as a product of the public school system where you just, you know, you're not reading these books. So I'm reading, um, like I'm reading uh, Homer's Odyssey right now and, you know, and, and discovering that. And, you know, I have a list of, of um, just a, a list of, of books that, that I, feel like I have to read right now just just to educate myself because you know I may have a future in public office at some point I, I don't know but I feel like in the long haul I want to be well appraised um, or as ha or have as large a grounding as I can in literature in economics in you know history world history um, cultures all these kinds of things so it's really it's really exciting for me personally because I'm like oh you know, it, it's just it's it's all new and, and things that I didn't know before. And 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 you, and you know how this is. The, the more that you read, the more research you do, the more you understand that you don't know shit. And yes. <laughs> there's a there's a there's a humility that comes from that, too. So that's what's exciting to me as far as where people can find me. Um, as, as we said before, you can find me bullshitting about politics on Twitter at Clifton A. Duncan. Um, I'm at, I'm at, Insta I'm on Instagram at Clifton Duncan online. And, uh, I have a YouTube channel, which is also my namesake, um, which I'll be uploading content, uh, uh to, uh, it, it might be, there may be more political content, uh, coming soon. I feel like I'm somebody who, you know, I look around and I'm like, you know, someone should do something. Someone should do something. And then you see that, and then you see that no one does shit. So you know, I, I feel like at a certain point that someone's going to have to be me to just keep, you know, just, just to keep speaking up and just, and, and saying things because they need, they need to be said. So, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's hard to answer, you know, what, what the future holds for me. I wish, you know, I wish I was like a pro, uh, a pro podcaster who has like a book to, a book to sell. It doesn't uh, matter. But you know, at the same time, you know, as I'm happy to reach out to, uh, to, to speak to a wider audience and, 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 um, and to just grow, just grow more support and, um, and build a following because there are people, there are people like me that are in these industries or, you know, who, who feel very alone and very alienated and very afraid. And I think, you know, if you're an artist, reach out to me, you know, so we can connect and collaborate. I've already met a few really great people, including friends of yours, Carrie. Um, just, you know, just we have to connect. We have to stick together. And I think 
just the same way that there's been an intellectual dark web, you know, there could be a cultural dark web as well. Um, you know, a new artistic, a new arts movement or something. I mean, I messaged uh, James Lindsay a long time ago and I said, I don't know what to do. It was around, a, it was around the time I contacted you, Carrie. I said, I'm just, I'm stressed out. I, I feel like, I, I feel hopeless. I just, I don't know what to do. And James was like, you know, it's going to be artists and comedians that will um, help move, you know, shift the culture, you know, and, and I thought about that. And I thought that was really interesting. So, you know, if you're a filmmaker, if you're a writer, if you're a, mus if you're a musician, producer, whatever it is, just let's, Let's get in contact. Let's build. Uh, let's build a movement. Let's have an alt entertainment movement. Let's dare I say it, make entertainment great again. <laughs> you, know, let, let's, uh, you know, so that that's sort of my position position right now. And you know, I'm still auditioning. I'm still, um, you know, I still have a foot in the door as far as the 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 mainstream uh, industry. But um, increasingly, I just don't know. Um, what the future is going to be for me in there. And especially once this interview begins making the rounds, I mean, that's sort of the end of my career anyway. We'll see. I, I, I um, happy to oblige, you know, <laughs> thanks Carter. Another, <laughs> another white man, this was saying, another white man keeping down the black man. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's the entire purpose of this interview is we're going to, I'm going to share it uh, among the white people's circles. So we all know that well, mostly the liberal but... white people's circles. But, you know, Clips, I don't know if you've seen that headline from The Root. This is the actual headline. It said, uh, black men are the new white men of black people. I've seen that. I've seen that. I've seen that. You know, it, some of that's some of that's funny sometimes when you talk about like I've heard uh, like, I've you know, I, I, I've heard that the, like the Japanese people are, are the white people of East Asia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You know, it's, it's hilarious, but I, I did I did see that headline. I know what you're talking about. So yeah, I mean, so that's that's the thing though. Like the, the these people are insatiable. They won't stop. And I, you know, and I've spoken to some of my my white progressive friends. You know, I'm like these people don't want equality. They don't want justice. They want revenge, and they'll never stop. You can do all the genuflecting that, uh, flecting that you want. You know, you you can try to be an ally as much as you want, but they still hate you. And you know, you have to. You have to understand that, and um, you know we, we just we have to we just have to build a, a, a new movement, take the culture in a different direction. And I think the arts have to be uh, at the forefront of that. I mean, Dave Chappelle and Ricky Gervais have already stepped out and said, "Look, look, we're done with this shit." So uh, I think more of us need to step up and say, "Look, we we are the majority. People like us, they're either apathetic, they don't care about politics. I mean, twenty percent of the population is on Twitter." And even among that 20%, it's like, you know, disproportionately, you know, educated, whatever, you know what I mean? And when I talk to regular people, you know, I, I just, I just think that they're on our side. They may not, they may not identify as left or right, but I think they just, you know, in any of the extremes, they don't they're, want to be a part. They're realists. They're, they're realists. Nice callback. There you go. Yeah. So, you know, oh, I, I could ramble about this forever, you know? I, mean, I love it. Well, we definitely talk. we want to have you back on unsafe space. I'm going to speak for both of us. Yes, uh, I know. I know Carter does. So thank you so much for sharing your time, your wisdom, your experience with us tonight. And uh, uh, again, we're going to put your links in the description so people can follow you, find you on uh, Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. And I love that you asked for people to reach out to you. That's amazing. I mean, I, th I think, it, like you said, it starts with us like networking and meeting one another and. That's awesome. Make entertainment great again. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Brendan. Uh, you will do. You will make an excellent podcast. I think you're articulate and uh, knowledgeable. I think go make whatever podcast you're thinking about. Go make it. <laughs>
So don't 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 uh, don't try to don't try to uh, uh, walk back now. You're trying to destroy me, white man. I, I see what no, you're I doing. <laughs> God damn it! I'm really bad oh, at this. Yeah. I forgot. Can't, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you could never do a podcast. You're not allowed to do podcasts. Don't think you yeah. could do a podcast. Let's just end it there. You know what? Now I have self righteous anger, so I'm going to change the world. <laughs> now you're going to go do a podcast. <laughs> now I'm going to go do a podcast. But I love the fact that we met. I feel like there's a reason that we did care. Yeah. And, and Carter, it's been a fantastic meeting and talking to you as well. So thanks, thank you very much for inviting me on. It's been it's been a pleasure as an understatement. Well, uh, same here. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. All right, thank you very much. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please report any sightings to your local Twitter mob. Did you know that gulags were actually compassionate educational institutions? If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Here's a fun fact, resistance to mandatory white privilege indoctrination is proof of your white privilege. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.